Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash G-O-M. Who taught you that shite? The greatest swordsman who ever lived. Cyril Farrell, the first sword to the Sea Lord of Bravos. Bravos. Reese <laughs> head little bastard of it. We all are. What do you know about anything? I bet his hair is greasier than Joffrey's cunt. It was not. Was? You dead? Yes. How? He was killed. Who by? Merrin Trant. That's why some Merrin's Merin on Merrin Trant? The greatest swordsman who ever lived killed by Merrin fucking Trant. He was outnumbered. Any boy whore with a sword could beat three Merrin Trant. Syria didn't have a sword. Or armor, just a stick. The greatest swordsman who ever lived didn't have a sword. <laughs> All right. You have a sword. Let's see what he taught you. Go on, do it for your propulsive friend. Bad like all the rest of your friends. <laughs> your friend's dead, and Meron Trant's not. Just Trant Tadama and a big fucking sword. Seven blessings, perfumed seneschals and ice river clansmen, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, explorer of the Great White North. And I'm Lady Rachel, queen of insomnia. <laughs> and this is episode 77. On this episode of our series rewatch, we are covering Game of Thrones season four, episode five, first of his name. And in case you're not already aware, this series rewatch is from the perspective of someone who's current on the show. That means you've seen up through season seven. So if not, there's still time to have Hodor lift you up by the neck and twist your head off so you don't have to hear these spoilers. Warning. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right, let's jump right into it. Sound good? Let's do it. Nice. Yes. Let's start with your number five. Okay, so this was a good episode. Yeah. Lots of lots of good stuff that came in this episode. And so my top five is conquering versus ruling. Whoa, cool. Yeah, and it's just kind of the scene um of Danny when um she kind of hears what's going on in Slaver's Bay and Young Kai re-enslaved the free the free men and swore to take revenge and asked to pour the council has been overthrown by a guy named Cleon, <laughs> which I thought was funny. He's a butcher, right? <laughs> He's a butcher. Yes. And, you know, I love Danny's sentiment kind of in this scene, which is echoed in season seven. And she says to Jorah, you counseled me against rashness once in Karth. I didn't listen. It all worked out well. And it reminded me of when, I think we talked about this last episode too, when they're on the beach at Dragonstone and she's just found out that they've lost... Uh, the fleet, right? The Greyjoy the fleet, fleet, Yara's. Yes, half. Yara's. And, you know, John kind of, John kind of says, um, 
you know, if you just go in there, like burning cities to the ground, it's just more of the same. And he advises her to not do it. And then the next scene is the loot train, the loot train battle. (laughs) (laughs) And it worked out. All right. And it all worked out. All right. So I thought that was kind of a great foreshadow, but you know, in this moment, she's realizing the major difference between conquering and ruling. It's easy to just kind of like roll through cities and conquer them and take them over. But ruling is actually taking care of her people and making sure that they don't fall back into bad hands. So right. this is a lesson that she's learning here. And it's so sad, too. Like, if you're doing all this hard work, you know, conquering and conquering and then having <laughs> And a all butcher your... takes it over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who declares himself his imperial majesty. Like, oh, God. Yes. Yes. Power vacuums can be dangerous. <laughs> I just liked this scene because it's a great educational moment for her. And, you know, again, in this scene, she's kind of dis, I don't want to say disobeying Jorah, but just not listening or agreeing with his advice. Like she's going to do something about it. And she realizes that she needs to prove herself as a ruler in Slaver's Bay to, in the future, take over Westeros. Because... She was basically saying, you know, the houses are, or actually Jorah said this, the houses of Westeros are going to flock to whatever side that they think is going to win. Right. They're not just going to follow her blindly, which is something that Master Illyrio, like, whispered in her brother's ear in the very first episode. of Sewing dragon banners in secret. Yes. They'll wave them upon your arrival. And so Danny knows... This is a load of bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I have to prove myself as a leader or as a conqueror or a ruler. And she learns the difference between the two in this scene. And, you know, Jorah's point, 10,000 men cannot conquer Westeros. Like, it's going to be chaos unless Danny proves herself as a as a leader. And right. I think she kind of learns that lesson in this scene. Totally. And she sort of realizes that it's not enough to be a Targaryen or just to be the mother of dragons. Cause why would, why should anybody trust her? You know, she says, why should anybody follow me? She realizes that she needs to represent something bigger than herself. It's freedom and, uh, and, and the, you know, the elimination of oppression. So, I just love the. I know a lot of people don't really like the the slavers base like stuff. All the marine stuff how it takes so long and everything like that. But I find it fascinating, and I love the like the political dynamics and the the struggle that Danny faces to realize what she stands for and to to hone her philosophy. <laughs> you know, before she's Truly. it's like a dry run. You know, before she's ready to go back to control and rule over seven kingdoms, she has to be able to handle at least three cities. <laughs> In Slaver's Bay first. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So she's she's understanding that it's one thing to conquer and it's a completely different thing to rule and have those political, you know, kind of pillars, if you will, to, you know, hold up her claim as to why people should follow her. Yep. That's that's gonna be echoed when she takes you know, when she goes back to Westeros, if she has that under her belt, that she is controlling Slaver's Bay, which at the end of the Miranese story, she changes it to the Bay of Dragons. Yes. Love that part. 
And so far up to where we are currently in the show, we haven't really heard back about how Slaver's Bay or the Bay of Dragons is doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that they kind of close that story loop in season eight somehow that it's either peaceful or it's falling again. Yeah, hopefully we <laughs> get a scene with Dario over there doing his job. <laughs> I'm hoping so because I love Dario in this scene too. <laughs> Danny finds out that, well, first she she also finds out that Joffrey is dead. Yeah, in this scene. it's a big moment. That's a big that's a big moment in this scene, and she also finds that Dario took the Miranese navy because he heard she likes ships. Oh yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Who told you to take the navy? No one. So why did you do it? I heard you like ships. Since <laughs> so, she's like, you shouldn't have done that, you know. But then she's like. How many ships? <laughs> <laughs> How many men can they carry? Would that be enough Which to is take great. King's Landing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I like this scene. It's I'm personally not really a fan of the Miranese story. I think it takes too long to cover a short amount of ground as far as her development goes. Sure. Which is understandable. Uh, but I agree that it's important for her development. It just it could be done a little bit quicker. Sure. It's good. I think it's good for a podcast to have like, you know, not necessarily to have us both agree a hundred percent on everything too. You know, it'll yeah, give us I agree more with uh, that. diversity. <laughs> um, also, I think it's worth saying that Danny just looks beautiful in this scene. Oh my God. She's freaking gorgeous. Yeah. So I was just watching and I'm like, wow, she looks really, really beautiful. I love, I love her dress. With the sides cut out of it. Ooh, I am having difficulty remembering because I was just so fixated on her face. <laughs> I love, I think out of all the the costumes, from a from a female perspective, her and Sansa have been my favorite as nice. far as like what they wear. Um, when I say Sansa, I love the dress that she is wearing when she's walking with Tyrion. Talking about sheep shift. <laughs> I love the sleeves on that dress and like the pop of color. And, you know, she, Danny, especially as her character grows, her costumes are awesome too. Oh, man. Have you gotten to the point in the books yet where they describe her Dothraki outfit that she wears? Um, it's been a while since I've read it, but yes, I'm past that. That would have been something cool to see. In the Wasn't her boob hanging out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's like the that's traditional right. Dothraki fashion to have like one of your boobs hanging out, and uh, yeah, that would have been cool. Which to see we on do the show, see but... at the wedding. We do see it at her and Drogo's wedding. Right. Yeah. Um, like the women of the Dothraki, their boobs are flapping all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, some some of them have one out and one in. Oh, nice. So. Yeah, I just, when I first saw that, I was like, what is going on? (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) What is happening here? (laughs) This is very foreign and kind of intimidating. (laughs) I love that white jacket she wears in season seven when she goes north of the wall. I'm like, oh my God, I want that jacket so bad. I've seen some really good cosplays where they like nailed that jacket. Yeah, and I think for the guys, I I really like, I like Jon Snow's 
Oh yeah, he's always got something cool on. I like um, the like Jamie's Kingsguard armor too, with the scales and everything. I really oh, just yeah. love that armor, big white capes and everything. Yeah, that's awesome. All of the costuming in this show is just incredible. I like the Night Kings too. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah. just like the CGI aspect of the Night King, which is so awesome. But I really like what he wears too. It's very. It reminds me of Tywin. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I you can look see at that. His outfit. Baelish always has cool clothes too. Yeah, yeah. The long, the long coats. I do like Baelish's as well. <laughs> Definitely. Anything else you want to add about this scene? No, I think that was it. How about you? Uh, I think that pretty much covered all of my notes for that scene too. Awesome. Okay. What was your number five? My number five is economic conquest. Okay. Uh, okay, so the the scene starts out with Tywin and Cersei planning out weddings. And it's pretty funny okay. because Tywin decides to give Marjorie a fortnight to mourn Joffrey's death, which is like <laughs> yeah, two yeah. weeks, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's like nothing, uh, which is funny. And they mention, uh, you know, this wedding is going to be more bare bones. No jugglers, no jousting dwarves, no 77 course meals. And that was something that I wanted to mention in our coverage of the Purple Wedding episode, that there's 77 courses at that wedding of food. That's crazy. Yeah, so when Cersei, when Marjorie wants to donate like the extra food to the homeless, basically, you know, to the, the, the small folk... That would have been a lot of food, basically. It's not It's not even leftovers. It's, like, just uneaten food. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty fucked up when Cersei, like, says feed it to the hounds instead, you know? Yeah, it could have probably fed, like, a really decent part of the city. Yep. I was going to say half, but <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> yeah. And then she actually sort of agrees to marry t- um, Loris here, which I found surprising like she's being surprisingly agreeable to tywin with this whole scene yes yes because she wants something out of tywin in this scene Mm-hmm. true true and uh, we got a funny little line about like the sort of the, the dynamics between tywin and robert he says i didn't like your husband like talking about robert he used, used to pat me on the back a lot <laughs> i didn't trust him <laughs> yeah. i thought that was kind of funny and then didn't she say neither did i yeah 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 Yep, we had that in common. I love uh, how she agrees to marry Loris a fortnight after the morning is over. Yep. <laughs> or the marriage is over. It's like, that's just a standard a um, fortnight. set of time mm-hmm. for morning and weddings. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so then they're going on to talk about how it's necessary to combine forces with the Tyrells. Like, there's only, they're only one true rival in terms of resources, and they need them on their side, and that's the Tyrells. They got all that food, like the the rich farming of of the of the of High Garden and the Reach, and um, you know they they're very wealthy as well. And she go he, Tywin goes on to explain here that Casterly Rock is no longer mining gold, and it's a, it's kind of funny the way it happens. He's like, "Do you know how much gold was mined in the Westerlands this past year?" And she's like, having a clue. Go on, your best guess. And uh, she says, pounds, tons, ounces. And he replies, doesn't matter. The answer is the same. 
And that is yeah, bad. Yeah, that totally confused me at first. I was like, what? I'm like, oh, zero. Yeah, zero. <laughs> she knows immediately that can't be. You know, and I'm like, oh my God, that's so fucked up. It was and, such uh, a great way of explaining it because it really did. When I first watched it, I was like, what? Yeah, same here. And I'm I like, was oh, like, it's zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So their last rent working mine ran dry three years ago, which is fucked up. And we learn that the, how do they pay for anything, you know? And it turns out the crown owes the Iron Bank of Bravos a tremendous amount of money. Like we were talking a fuck ton of money, a loot train worth of money, you know? Right. And uh, so she's like, you know, there there has to be someone you can talk to, come to some arrangement. And he's like, listen, the Iron Bank is the Iron Bank, you know? And at this point, I'm thinking, oh, man, the Iron Bank is becoming a fixture on the show. Like, out of nowhere, we're getting a good amount of world building in season four where Dorne is being introduced. We're learning more about Bravos and the Iron Bank. And uh, Tywin basically goes on to explain a little bit about the uh, the Iron Bank and that, that it's, 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 it's over a thousand years old or, or more. And... Everybody lives in its shadow, and almost none of us know it. I liked that scene because, or that moment, because it shows like a little bit of nervousness with Tywin. Yeah, like he doesn't like that. He doesn't like being in debt with the Iron Bank because he knows that they always like the, like the Lannisters collect their debts. Yeah, and he, he goes on. You can't run from them. You can't cheat them. You can't sway them with excuses. If you owe them money and you don't want to crumble yourself. You pay it back. And I love it because it not only shows that Tywin is like um, revealing a vulnerability, but it also is a very key piece of wisdom because banks, there's, I'll put it this way. This, my point's called economic conquest, right? There's three different types of conquest. I probably talked about this before on the show. There's military conquest, but you can't keep troops motivated all the time and believing in the cause, right? So eventually there'll be mutinies like at Craster's Keep. Or Rob Stark. Yeah, Rob with Stark. Bolton. Yeah, you can't you can't rely on military con- conquest 100% of the time. Then there's religious conquest. And um religion comes from the word relegate or the, the relegare, the Latin which means to make subservient which is interesting. So, um, you know, there's religious conquest, but you can't convince everybody to believe what you want them to believe all the time, so it's not, not entirely reliable. Then there's the third type of conquest, which is economic conquest. And it's the most insidious type of conquest because it's mathematical and calculated, and most people don't even understand it, and it just flies right by everybody. So <laughs> it's... When Tywin says, we all live in its shadow and almost none of us know it, that is the perfect way to describe economic conquest, that there's banks making, you know, lending out money to both sides of the of the war, taking control no matter what in the end. Banks are like, are the, are, they're the men behind the curtain, central banks, basically, and um, it's... It's just a really key piece of info that he's dropping on her here. So I thought it was really significant that we're learning about this. Um, pretty, uh, pretty poignant. Yeah, I. That's a really great pickup. That it's a really great way of explaining kind of what goes on in our 
world too. You right. know, we all kind of live on the, under this veil of debt. Really, I mean, yeah, money most is Americans debt have nowadays. some sort of debt. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's if you look at the uh, top of a of a dollar bill, it says Federal Reserve note in the U.S. and note literally means debt. So whereas the money used to be backed, like it, it was a commodity-backed system where the 1792 Coinage Act defined a dollar as 371.25 grains of silver, it was changed subsequently to um, have a debt-backed system, basically. Central banks print money out of thin air. The They loan it to the governments, and the governments then owe that as a debt to the central banks. They have to pay back the debt plus, in, plus interest, so in order to pay back the interest, they have to borrow more money from the bank, which creates an ever-expanding pool of, of fiat money, of debt-backed currency. And it, as, a, as the pie expands and expands, each, each unit dollar or mark or whatever it is becomes worth a little bit less. And that's inflation, is the, uh, the increase of the monetary supply resulting in the devaluation of the currency. So... Banks, basically, when they issue currency, they're essentially stealing from the future because they get the immediate benefit of the new money at the, at the market rates that are at, like existing at that time, the value of the currency. And then once it trickles down into the system, it weakens all the rest of the dollars. So banks can dictate which areas of the economies grow by who they lend credit to. They can dictate the the using interest rates they can expand and contract economies as a whole um economic conquest is a real thing and so it's taiwan is very very smart and uh that means that george r r martin is really smart and uh <laughs> yeah <you know? laughs> he's a genius <laughs> yeah it's just something that i wasn't expecting to um see covered on this show because uh, it's never really covered in anything you know, sure. 99% of people have probably never even heard the phrase economic conquest. Um, so it's kind of cool and uh, it's scary at the same time. Yeah, and I like that even a man as powerful as Tywin seems weary of it. Definitely, definitely like nervous about it. Like it's something he can't even control. You know? Exactly, like he can deal. And we also see in this season to him pick up kind of a little bit of tension and nervousness with Danny across the narrow sea. Cause true with this, what he said to when, Tommen last week. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he's starting to feel the pressure mm-hmm. of, you know, he's defeated the Starks in his mind and he's realizing that <laughs> while they've been dealing with the Starks, they, you know, they have the Tyrells to worry about and they need to form an alliance with really quickly a few alliances to tie them in multiple ways to the Lannisters. Yeah. And the Iron Bank. I mean, that's a threat to be in that much Huge debt. Threat. And yeah. like you said, Tywin is smart enough to know that. So I think he's starting to realize like Rob Stark was just a pig on the wheel. Like yep. <laughs> they have a lot more people to roll over before they're they're safe and he makes this point when um was it him that said it or Cersei I don't have it listed in my notes but it says who can we trust ourselves alone 
And I find that interesting because Tyrion is one of them and Tyrion ends up killing Tywin. Oh, yeah, true. Good point. Over over what's about ready to happen, why they're talk why while they're why they are talking initially and why Cersei is being so lenient with Tywin, which is she wants this tri- trial to go a certain way and she's going to try to convince her dad. Yep. And it's funny too cuz Tywin is like <laughs> the only one Tyrion kind of too, aside from killing Tywin. Tywin's the only one you, they can that is really trustworthy. <laughs> like he's he lays out the the truth. He stands by his word, even if you don't like his perspective or whatever. He's, you know, he's 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 pretty honest to the family at least. Cersei can't trust her. <laughs> Jamie uh, can't trust him really. He's got his own like ulterior incestuous motive motives. <laughs> you know, it's uh it's pretty funny just how, how none of them can really trust each other. <laughs> No, it's exactly. So it's um, it's a very telling scene for Tywin as far as what makes him sleepless at night, if you will. Yep, and uh, he 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 lays it out. He says, "Vesting the Tyrells in the crown will help a great deal in this respect." Talking about the debt to the to the Iron Bank. So he's basically just. Roping in the Tyrells to, to drain their their exchequer, you know, right. get them to pay for the uh, the royal bill, basically, which is hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's the motivation for allowing Marjorie to marry Tommen, uh, you know, and continue to try to marry into the Lannister slash Baratheon family. Yeah, it's it's a good scene. I also like how he tells Cersei, like, I'm not going to discuss the trial with you. Like, I'm basically I'm on to you. Why you're being so lenient. Uh-huh. I'm not going to do it. And she says, you know, you you started wars to protect this family. You know, you turned your back on your legacy for refusing to contribute to its future. You know, what does Tyrion deserve for lighting that future on fire? You know, oh, she's man. trying to, she's trying to, you know, dig at him like you have done all these things for like, in her mind, lesser crimes. Right, totally. And that's the last so, line of the scene too. What does, what does Tyrion deserve for lighting that future on fire? Yeah. So do you have any other notes on this? think that pretty much wraps it up we get a good lesson in conquest and we learn about something that you know form of conquest that most people don't really understand which makes it all the more dangerous and we learn about the ulterior motive for trying to uh, rope in the tyrells to (laughs) to join the royal family basically so they can pay back all that dough that the lannisters can't pay back which is (laughs) crazy They're going to be so pissed when they find out. Oh, wait. No, they never even find out. They get completely destroyed and all of their gold stolen. (laughs) I know. That's so bad. Oh, my God. That's so funny, though. So, yeah, that pretty much wraps up my number five. Uh, How about your number four? My number four I dubbed as the Redheads. Ooh, that sounds cool. So, this is when... Sansa meets her Aunt Lysa, her crazy Aunt Lysa. And we all have a crazy aunt out there. Yes, I know I do. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> Mine, her name begins with L, too. 
Oh my goodness. All of my aunt's names start with an A, and so oh. does my mom's. All of mine start with L's. And my mom. Oh, how funny. Five sisters. Lisa, Laura, Linda, Leslie, and Lorraine. My moms are Annette, Amanda, who's my mom, Adele, Andrea, and Allison. That's funny. Our families have a lot in common. They do. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah. So the redheads. Um, Sansa meets her crazy Aunt Lysa, which mm -mm. is where that tangent went on. <laughs> and we realize fairly, I mean, we know Lysa's kind of a freak when her 10-year-old's, like, breastfeeding in the earlier scenes, but we really get a glimpse into kind of her paranoia mm -hmm. in this episode, and her just kind of, I don't know how to describe her other than paranoid and kind of manic. She's making... Sansa already in this very first scene feel like her presence is a nuisance. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I, you know, let your hair down, but take the back stairs. You know, Robin, don't call her Sansa. Right. Oh, and speaking of uh, don't call, not calling her Sansa and the red hair, uh, Baelish tells her to pull up her hood because her hair is a memorable shade of red. And right. um, so hiding her identity, it, it sort of mirrors the way that Bran learns the lesson from Jojen to conceal his identity for strategy as well. So I just thought that was a cool little mirror that's worth pointing out. Yeah, that's a great catch. I didn't even think of that. So I, I loved that, you know, as a first time viewer of the show, you would not probably catch this. And we do find out about it later in this act, the same ep episode but when Robin tells Sansa the Lannister the Lannisters killed his father with poison, Lysa gives Baelish like this look, right? Of, like thug life look. I noticed <laughs> the that glasses too. go down. <laughs> yeah, that was great. She like yeah gives him a knowing look. Yeah, and we do find out that it was Littlefinger that told Lysa to pour the poison in the wine, and I think I have that in my notes somewhere. Um, yeah, it's right after Sansa walks out of the room. Yeah. And she rushes over to kiss Baelish. What took oh, you so long? Yes. Arranging for the ascension of King Tommen I, extricating Sansa, getting her here alive. <laughs> We've spent more yeah. than enough time on her for one evening. Let's get married tonight, you know, and when he tries to dodge it, she's she's sort of like manipulates him by by bringing up all the things that that you know that she's done for him like what what wife would do for you the things i've done what wife would trust you the way i've trusted you you know when you gave me those drops and told me to pour them into john's wine my husband's wine you know and she's like manipulating him with it which is kind of funny and I love his line, only speaking of it makes it real. Because yeah. it's just like, if you talk about it, if you keep talking about it, it's going to come back to get us. You know, it's, which it does. The deed is done, faded into nothing. Does Sansa accuse Baelish in season seven of killing John Aaron when she executes him or has him executed? Uh, I feel like she says something about John Aaron in that scene, and I just can't yeah, I remember. can't remember. She probably does, 
Because Bran knows everything, right? So she probably got the scoop from Bran. Yeah, and so I liked this line because in my mind, for some reason, I feel like she said that. Right, And right. I could be I wrong, right. so I don't want to be like 100%, but for some reason, I feel like John Aaron is mentioned in his death scene. So when he says only speaking of it makes it real, like it's been spoken about multiple times. And like you said, Bran's the one that's seen it and likely told Sansa and made it real. Like Mm -hmm. he got punished for his, his crime and (laughs) she just kind of continues to like, Oh, we had our wedding night years ago. And I know you get a little bit more of their story in the books about their like early love story, like that they had, you know, spent the night together and had sex. And even though Peter loved Kat, and I I know you don't really get much of that on the show, but I like that there was a little nod there to the fact that she really has loved him a long time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot more to that in the books. Some interesting stuff. Yeah, so I, I also like... When he said one man can be worth 10,000. And it's another glimpse into kind of Littlefinger's way of thinking. And it reminded me of Tywin talking about the Red Wedding. Mm. It's like, you know, so you would be willing to sacrifice 10,000 men over a dozen at dinner. Um, I think he says that to Tyrion. And it's kind of the same sentiment here. So we, we kind of get a, a glimpse that... Tywin, Littlefinger, and Stannis all kind of think similarly as far as sacrificing the few for the many. Definitely. And it's really funny because at the end of where we are at currently in this series, all three of those men are dead. True. Very interesting. Great minds die alike. Yes. And so then <laughs> we we see, you know, like... Littlefinger finally says, okay, let's get married. We should notify the Lords of the Vale. And she like throws that creepy dress over her shoulders and goes and gets the sept. Right. She just opens the door and everybody's there. And he's there waiting. Yeah. (laughs) It's so creepy. And Littlefinger's face is so funny. He's like, oh my God. Yeah. He's overwhelmed. (laughs) You know, we don't don't seem overwhelmed much. No, of course she would have. The scepter waiting and witnesses waiting. Mm-hmm. And then she's going to scream so loudly yeah. on her wedding night. And then you cut to Sansa, like, listening to it. And it's just, oh, my God. Yeah, and she was not so lying bad. either. She's totally screaming. Yes, yes. Immediate wedding. Um, <laughs> for sure. And I do want to just backpedal. I think when they show the eerie from the bloody gate, I think it's my favorite castle. It's amazing. Like on top of like a hollow mountain. I know. Oh, and man. I, I've read enough of the books to know like what a journey it is to get up there. Like yeah. on the donkeys. And yeah, that was something I wanted to mention too, is that like, it is an extremely harrowing trip to get up there. Like some people it's like can't a three even day do process. it. Yeah. Like, like Tyrion doesn't even want to do it. They lift him up in a basket. <laughs> in a basket, like you a know? potato basket or yeah, something. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. So the moon door, which is like in the middle of the castle, that like looks down over that hollow part of the mountain or something. Mm-hmm. 
Looks like it. So trippy. There's some really, really cool um, artwork of of the uh, the area. And if you get a chance, listeners, um, go back and pause it when you get a view of the area and just take a good look at it. It's pretty amazing. It really is. I've I've paused it actually a few times and I'm so impressed with first of all George R R Martin's imagination of the castle. Mhm. Of of the detail like especially in the books each stop along the way. Yeah, like the little pathways you got across where there's like open air on both sides and you're crossing a little tiny bridge of stone and then and the, the donkey's that, just nowhere to go yeah like there's little footholds cut out from like near vertical sheer rock faces and the donkeys just like know exactly where to step to get their way i up. think we get this from cat's point of view chapters if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. when she's going up to the Erie. Yeah. They really spend a lot of time on her journey up there. And I love the CGI. I think they really captured very closely my what would be my imagination of that castle from totally. George R.R. R. Martin's description of it. We don't get to meet, what is her name, Maya Stone on the show, do we either? No, you don't. Not the the guide. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, she's one of Robert Baratheon's bastards. Oh, really? I didn't. I didn't know. Yeah, that. it's sort of hinted at. I believe. Yeah, dark brown, dark black hair. Like, yeah. Pay attention when blue you're eyes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. Interesting. Yeah, there is a. Uh... Well, isn't Sky the bastard name for Eerie too? The eerie or the sky? I think yeah, maybe she's a she's stone. Which oh, is stone! Like, uh, Riverlands, maybe. I can't remember. Exactly. No, that's rivers. Oh yeah, but rivers. they're they're east they're east of the Riverlands, so mm-hmm. maybe stone is a bastard name. Yeah, Be I curious if any of our listeners know about that. So I went and Googled it, and the bastard names are as follows: for the Reach, it's flowers; for the Westerlands, it's hill. For the Iron Islands, it's pike. For the Riverlands, it's rivers. For Dorne, it's sand. For the North, it's snow. For the Vale of Arran, it's stone. For the Stormlands, it's storm. For the Crownlands, it's waters. It's also worth noting that this system does not apply to the bastards of small folk. At least one parent, um, usually the father, is a, has to be a member of a noble house. So if the, both the, the mother and father are commoners, the child cannot use the bastard's surname. It's so interestingly, uh, possessing a bastard's surname is simultaneously a mark of distinction and a badge of shame. So anyone who meets a bastard with uh, a surname, with a bastard's surname, will immediately know that they're not simply a bastard, but the bastard child of a noble. And I found another uh, cool thing which basically gives bastard names for each of the states in the U.S. So all 50 uh, states are given a different bastard name based on suggestions from people who lived in the states. So California would be gold, Connecticut is nutmeg, although I would have said oak. Rhode Island is mist, Massachusetts is pine, Florida is sun, Texas is star, Alaska is ice, Hawaii is sand. 
and uh, I'll post a link to it on our Facebook page. So go to facebook.com slash GOM podcast, and it'll be linked up there. Back to the show. Yeah, I love how each of the kingdoms has their own bastard names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's so yeah. cool. Um, it is really cool. Other thing that I thought was interesting. Oh, you mentioned that, you know, know your strengths Use them wisely. One man can be worth 10,000. Um, the fortress built at the area has never been overcome in over a thousand years because it's great, easily defendable because it's just so difficult to get to. Um, it reminded me of how somebody says at one point that Winterfell, you could fend off 10,000 men with just 500. Similar yes. type deal. And was it uh, Bronn who was talking about the the Eyrie? Um, Being impregnable. Yeah. Oh, give me ten <laughs> yeah. good men and I'll impregnate the bitch. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. Great line. So it when we um, we get up there and Lysa's talking about all of the suitors that have come to uh, try to get her hand in marriage, you know, and she's been saving herself for Peter Baelish. But the way that he arrives and there's been all these suitors, like uh, like at Tyrion's trial by combat she picks Sir Vardis Egan to fight and all of these guys that are volunteering to fight for her are people who are suitors who are trying to get her to marry them impress her yes yeah so it it made me think of all of the suitors who are lined up to marry Odysseus's wife while he's away fighting at Troy in uh, Homer's The Odyssey Um, interesting Penelope just has like hundreds and hundreds of these suitors who are showing up trying to impress her with various contests of valor and then Odysseus returns home and he he returns to to their their castle in in the guise of a beggar and and proves his valor by defeating all of the uh, the other champions the other suitors in these contests shooting ring like uh, arrows through golden rings and then reveals that it's him and <laughs> it's amazing that's so funny yeah it's really that's cool. awesome yeah so i i mean i dubbed my number four the redheads and the only other scene i wanted to mention between the two of them are i dubbed as the lemon cake scene <laughs> <laughs> that she oh yeah that was so know, funny again starts making sansa feel uncomfortable because you know, Sansa kind of puts the two and two together. Like, you can't grow lemons up here. Like, how do you make lemon cakes? And Peter brought, you know, six crates of lemons back because he knows how much you like them. And then she starts, like, her paranoia. Right. Of, you know, like, why does he feel that he is responsible for you? And oh, so messed up. She's, she's like, squeezing her hands and just yeah. kind of, like, getting on Sansa. You're hurting me. Yeah, like... Then asking, like, are you pregnant? Like, what? do you know what the horrors do to his body? It's like her mind <laughs> yeah. is, like, going fucking everywhere. It's like, you... Oh, my gosh. She just told you that she was a virgin. Like... Yeah. <laughs> what on earth is going on? She rants like a total crazy lady there. It's just, you know, you're seeing the cracks. The cracks are showing. Oh, completely. Cause, she is out there. I mean, her, Sansa does almost slip up. When, you know, he goes, he's, he's loved you. He's only loved you, you know, and right before that, she, she goes, because he loved my family or your family, our right. family. Cat. And she was like, you were going to say your mother. 
And then right. she starts like, wigging out even more. And Sansa's like, oh, fuck, no. Like, he loves you. He loves you. I'm a virgin. Oh, my God. Like, what is happening? We were talking about my mom getting fat on lemon cakes. And now you're like. Right. Yeah, that was funny. my hands and hurting me. She's <laughs> talking about Kat getting fat. And then she's like, oh, I didn't mean for you to stop eating. You know. I know. Again, it's just like kind of twisted. Like, Go ahead. Get fat. That'll, that way Peter won't like you. Yeah, it's twisted. It's so funny. It's great. I'm a virgin, I swear it. I know, it was sad. I'm a stupid little girl with stupid dreams who never learns, and I'm a terrible liar, so I should always tell the truth. You know, that's what Baelish is telling her. Exactly. All he says is that I'm stupid. She's used to repeating things that are said about her, and we we see this at first, like, when Joffrey is tormenting her. Mm-hmm. You know, she goes, I'm loyal to my beloved Joffrey. He is my one true king. Like, he's, I think she says that to Tyrion, and Tyrion goes, Lady Sansa, you'll survive us yet. Yeah, he's like, sure. <laughs> yeah, right. You he know? sees that she's playing, <laughs> or trying to play, she's, at least. Absolutely. Um, so this is some classic manipulation here by Lysa. She's, like, squeezing her hands and and intimidating her and everything and then she lets go and comes and embraces her it's all right it's all right you know oh my god i know it's like she's She's like the abusive boyfriend or husband who's like beating his wife and then caressing her and giving her a sponge bath and you know and it's like a (laughs) tactic that pimps use to to control their uh their women yeah it's it's very mental yeah beat her then give her a bubble bath and this is where I was calling her kind of manic is because oh, yeah. like her mind is not thinking in a linear perspective. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he brought you six crates of lemon cakes. So now you're fucking him. You know, it's like, how do you make that jump? <laughs> and then that kiss that happens when Sansa's building the snow castle, like, oh, man, oh it just yeah. compounds her paranoia and Sansa totally was innocent too do you think okay I have my theories do you think Peter knew, knew. that she was watching uh, that's a great idea I, I I don't know but it would definitely uh, it would it would definitely be a smart move by him to put her on edge and uh, set her up to get herself off <laughs> basically to commit suicide yeah, yeah and I think he sees the opportunity when she was going after Sansa at the moon door mm-hmm. he, maybe he was waiting for some different way to do it but he sees that opportunity i think he had full knowledge that she was standing that's pretty great i hadn't thought about that before i like that oh uh, i remember one of our listeners i think theorizing that baelish had was a eunuch after the brandon duel like after dueling brandon what i didn't read that no Um, tell me more i don't remember who it was but this scene seems to debunk that theory because uh he's he's definitely screwing lisa yes you know i mean yeah or other things but yeah true we'll 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 assume that but she also says you know like what things have you let him do with your body you know and she actually mentions that he does things with the whores or at least he, right, yeah. she imagines that he does things with the horse because we know that Roz and that mysterious foreign girl, when they're going all crazy with each other and 
Oh, right, Baelish's. right. The, uh, the girl with the semen face girl. <laughs> the yes. Same girl. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, my God. Peter, while they're doing their whatever they're doing, Peter's talking about Lysa and Kat in that scene. So right. he's not like partaking in their dirtiness. Um, she actually says, like, why don't you come and join us? And he's like, no, I'm saving myself True. for somebody. So, yeah, that whole speculation about the vile things that that they let people do to them and that Peter does them. Yeah, I think that's her paranoia. I don't think he's actually doing it. Yeah, all speculation. Yeah, so very. I've never heard that theory that he might be a eunuch. Huh. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I kind of doubt it, especially after this scene. Um, so she is talking about how they're going to execute that dwarf for murdering the king and that filthy troll. Yeah. yeah. And soon Sansa, <laughs> you'll be free to marry little sweet Robin. You'll be the lady of the veil. <laughs> and so we get a kind of a glimpse into how in Westeros, it's kind of normal to marry like your first cousin. Yeah. And I love Sansa's face. She's yeah. like, are you kidding me? I finally feel like I was somewhere safe. Now I have a crazy aunt to deal with, and she wants me to marry my cousin. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> yep. Pretty brutal. <laughs> That's killer. Anything else you want to add about the uh, about this scene? No. How about you? Um, I think that's pretty much it. Lysa's wild and has a goes on an epic rant <laughs> just, just total maniac and um my number four it kind of plays into mine which was just revelations there was two major revelations in this episode which is that lysa killed john aaron and baelish is responsible for the whole plot line of this series basically yes i have that in my notes too that lysa and baelish are the catalysts for the entire reason the show exists yeah. which i thought was awesome yeah so that's a major revelation that was just mind-blowing i remember the first time seeing it like wow this is all because of baelish he's just he's 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 the man behind the curtain you know the marionette just pulling all the strings all over the all these people yeah i i will be honest and say i did not catch that the first the first time for sure i did not catch it it might have been the second or even the third oh, time yeah, that yeah, i yeah. was like oh, right. oh my god he had her send the letter to to cat which and... made ned go south and yep and cat was I like i finally realized yeah and cat remember when she got the letter she was like it must be true because you know Lysa wouldn't just write this if somebody intercepted it her head would be on a spike you know like she put herself in danger by doing this so it seemed like it was true at the time Yes. Oh, I uh, I noticed another good foreshadow in this episode. Lysa's death is kind of foreshadowed here. Okay. Peter Baelish shows up. He gives Sweet Robin a, a gift. <gasps> oh, yes. And then uh, immediately his his new gift, he basically throws it out the uh, the moon door because he's talking. Window. Yeah, <laughs> he's throwing Sansa like. <laughs> 
I wanted to make the little Lannister baby man fly, you know, but mother said I couldn't. And she's like, make him fly. You know, like, what the fuck are you talking about, sweet Robin? He's like, duh, through the moon door. Don't you have a moon door? You know? And so um, he he gets a new toy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He gets a new toy and immediately throws it out. And it's basically mirroring Baelish, who gets a new wife, and it basically immediately throws her out of the moon door as well. Oh my god, that's awesome. This is like his new toy, you know? (laughs) I love it. It's so funny. Um, And uh, Sansa looks disgusted at the thought of throwing Tyrion through the moon door, and that's just more evidence that she's come to respect him. Um, I'm convinced. So that was kind of cool watching this scene. Little things I hadn't noticed before. Sansa's reaction to that. You know, the idea of Tyrion going through the moon door. Um, the the whole parallel with Sweet Robin and Lysa and foreshadowing her death. I like that. I thought it was funny. I never even picked up on the foreshadowing. That's such a great pickup. And it's <laughs> so true. That's <laughs> pretty, pretty hilarious. Nice. Awesome. So great yeah, there's, catch. Thank you. So there's that revelation. And then there's the, the other revelation, which we discussed, which is that Casterly Rock is empty of gold. And holy oh, shit, no. that is big news. So yeah, that, that uh, covers my number four as well. How about your number three? Okay, my number three (laughs) is The Squire. Nice. And all I can say to Pod is put your hands down. Oh, when he's riding? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it would make all the difference. (laughs) Interesting. So what does putting your hands down do? Well, if you raise your hands, it it puts tension on the bit in the horse's mouth and... You, it's really hard to steer a horse with your hands up because of the way their neck kind of naturally slopes upward and then downwards. Their jaw is parallel to the ground, ideally, when you ride, or at least kind of like pointed towards the ground. If you raise your hands up over your head... Lifts gonna, their jaw up. It's going to knock the bit on the roof of their mouth, so they're going to lift their head up. Once they've kind of locked their jaw out, it's very difficult to steer a horse that way. Interesting. Okay, cool. So the the more round their neck, like up and over, the easier it is to maneuver them. So with their head like perpendicular to the ground, basically. Yes, yes. So raising your arms, if you just put your arms down, the horse will relax its neck into its natural shape. And you can turn them kind of side to side like the oar of a boat. Nice. It's like using a paddle versus like an oar. So yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to paddle on either side versus... So you're just providing left to right motion instead of like extra up and down, which could be distracting for them as well. Yeah, and it it just irritates their mouth and they're also kind of just like, Like, what what are you doing? Plus, Plus he's like... As the horse turns, he's kind of sliding around. And I want to say, like, tighten the girth on your saddle. Uh, you, won't, <laughs> you won't go side to side as right. much of it's spinning it's right girth. around the whole thing. <laughs> That's so I love Brienne in the scene because his terrible riding is annoying the crap out of her, too. Oh, <laughs> uh, funny. So um we learn in the scene that they are headed towards the wall because that's where they think Sansa went. Mm-hmm. And I like this scene because when Sansa does finally reach the wall, she is actually with Brienne. So I thought that was kind of a nice little foreshadow. And oh yeah, 
and pod pods there too pods <laughs> up the wall too um so we get a glimpse of kind of pods squiring skills <laughs> if you will <laughs> or lack thereof or a lack thereof um we see him cooking a rabbit with the fur on it and you know Brienne is very proud. She doesn't want him helping her with her armor, which she's clearly struggling with. <laughs> and, you know, she asks Pod, you know, what did you do for Tyrion? Like, if you can't cook a rabbit, or you can't <laughs> ride a horse, or, you know, or any of the things that are annoying her in the scene. And I love, he just says, mostly... I just poured wine. Yeah. Like, he was so honest with her. She has no respect for him, basically, at this point. No. And at the end of the scene, she kind of does, because he reveals to her in the scene that he killed a Kingsguard at the Battle of the Blackwater. And that's no small accomplishment. Yeah, you can see it kind of on her face, like, what? Yeah. And she finally gets curious because she doesn't ask him a lot of questions. True. You know, she's like, how did you do it? And he goes, I, you know, put a spear through the back of his head, essentially. And she's like, badass. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's like the, the thought I, you know, the feeling, the vibe I got from her. Absolutely. And then that's when she invites him to help her with her armor straps. Yeah, she basically realizes, oh, maybe he does have some potential, you know, I'm going to give him a shot. Yeah, so... I thought that was a great moment. It's it's a very short number three, but I thought it's a great introduction into their budding, I don't want to say relationship, but budding friendship and being journeymen with each other. It's, they're finally... It's... Oh, you know, it, it's kind of similar to Jamie. It kind of Brienne throws up this huge wall. Oh yeah, with the people that she travels with, especially men. and then yeah, especially men because they've treated her like crap and laughed mm-hmm. at her in her whole life. But it's a very interesting similarity what she's doing with Pod. She was very standoffish to him, and now that he's divulged some, you know, personal information that clearly affected him she's starting to open up to him <laughs> and they have they have a good relationship you know later in the series as well definitely it's fun there's some funny stuff here too uh she, she's like uh she's like i've made it this far in the world without a squire i don't see why i need one now and he, he's like all knights have a squire my lady you know and she's like i'm not a knight <laughs> you know <laughs> and i'm not a slaver either i don't own you i'm releasing you from the oath yeah, of a squire yeah, i swore an oath my lady <laughs> so funny that means you can you can leave you know <laughs> um, right. so what, what what do you think will happen if if you leave they'll say i wasn't a very good squire <laughs> you know <laughs> i just have got to love pod man my nose yeah he's a good he's a good character so it's fun it's a short number three but that was my number three nice yeah that's a great one and i'm just thinking like who doesn't know that you have to skin a rabbit before you try to cook it (laughs) things catching on fire and just flames shooting everywhere and and he's like oh fuck yeah brian's just like stomping on it what is going on here 
she's carrying all this firewood and he's like stomping out the rabbit. She's like, what on earth is happening right now? Yep. So great. So yeah, that pretty much covers my notes for that scene too. Okay. What's, what's your number three? My number three is Craster's Chaos Part 2. Tanner, Locke, and Rast meet the stranger. Oh, nice. Uh-huh. My number one, I dubbed the raid. So okay, cool. I'll, I'll collaborate. Sounds with you on good. This one. <laughs> so we, uh, we're at Craster's Keep, and Rast is dragging a girl outside for who knows what, but it doesn't look good. And Locke. And the Night's Watch decide to uh, creep up and stealth infiltrate. Well, first, Locke is sort of on his own to assess the situation. And he's going all Splinter Cell style, uh, creeping around corners and <laughs> being as quiet as he can, which is fun to watch. And he uh, he ends up discovering Bran and Jojen and Mira and Hodor hiding and comes back and... Uh, informs John and everything. And that's when Jojen is 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 in there and uh starts having a vision when he's talking to Bran and he sees Bran there like tied to the post but then in the background is the 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 tree and the northern vista really beautiful uh CG that they did on this scene. I thought it yes. looked really nice. And uh Bran's he's telling Bran, you know, you mustn't mustn't let anything stop you and bran is sort of beginning to lose hope he's like they've already stopped me and he's like no 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 like i've seen it you know you're you're not here in the future you're far from here you've you're at the at the tree at the hill and bran's like oh my god you've seen it too which is pretty cool so we you know they've met each other in visions before and now they're like realizing they've seen the same stuff in their visions and he's telling Bran of his significance, like, Mira and I, like, and even Hodor, we're only here to guide you. And I'm wondering, does he know what happens with Hodor? If I think he sees what happens to himself and to Hodor. And I wrote down in this scene that could it potentially be a foreshadow of Mira's death at some point in season eight. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because he He's says, sort of... we're, we're only here to guide you. Well, he dies, then Hodor dies. We know Mira's still alive, but... But for how long? For she how long? leaves Winterfell, remember? Doesn't she uh, yes. leave to go back to the neck, I think? That was a really sad scene, too. She, like, pours her heart out to Bran. He's just like, okay, you can go. Robo Bran. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think that this is a very foretelling scene. I think Mira, I don't, she might go somewhere in the books that we're aware of, but I don't know if that's made clear on the show where she goes. I think... That she goes back to the neck and that she is going to return with her father. Oh, okay. Who is Howland Reed, and he's the only guy to witness the, you know, the the scene at the Tower of Joy where Ned Stark supposedly defeats Arthur Dane, but it's really Howland Reed that stabs him in the back of the neck. And then he see, he's there to witness, you know... John's birth, basically, the discovery of Aegon Targaryen, who's turns out mm-hmm. to be John Doe, John Snow. So that could be critical for season eight. 
and proving John's lineage, etc. With the combined knowledge that Rhaegar had an annulment that we learned from Sam and Gilly in the book at the ca- Castle Black, combined yes. with with Joe with a uh, Howland Reed as a witness for John's retrieval at the Tower of Joy. Uh, that's and we know John is heading back to Winterfell too with Danny. Right. Yeah. So those two pieces of information are enough to sl- like to solidify John's true, um, you know, his heritage and his his identity. So that's gonna be really exciting. Oh my exciting. goodness! Yes, I love that theory. That's awesome. Yeah, Mira Mira leaving opens the door for Howland to come. You know, now that she's got all this information, she could go back there talk to him and. He's like, all right, I need to step up, step in here. <laughs> like, information needs to be revealed, you know? Yes, absolutely. So that could that's, be really cool. That's an awesome theory. I am looking forward to seeing if that plays out. Thanks. Yeah, I hope it I hope it does. I'm really, really hoping to see Howland Reed in season eight. And uh, if, if he does show up, I don't know about it because I've, I've been staying spoiler-free for season eight, so I don't know anything about new characters that are coming in or anything like that. Neither do I. I'm nice. trying to steer clear of that's the way to do it. Uh, show show spoilers for for season eight. So totally. I don't mind books. Spo- it's so funny. I don't mind book spoilers. Oh, I I try to avoid both. Like I haven't read any I, of the Winds yeah. of Winter chapters that are, are out yet or anything yet. That's funny. I have very little time to read, but when I do, I try to get through a chapter or two here and there. Nice. Oh, this is the part two where Jojen sees his hand burning. Yes, and I I wanted to make that distinction because last episode that we recorded, I thought Jojen's vision was about the tree, and I was actually mistaken. So now I think he was, in that episode, this last episode, I think he was seeing Carl Tanner die because in this episode he says, I've seen you die, I've seen... Yeah, tonight I've seen the snow fall upon your bones. Yes! Love it. And in this episode, we do see that he has the vision of the tree and his hand burning. So I think in my mind, I've seen the show so many times, I combined his two visions uh-huh. in my memory. Right, 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 right. The, uh, <laughs> so what do you think um, is the significance of his hand burning? Does it like represent um, how his whole body is immolated by that Children of the Forest's bomb? Well, the she bomb? throws, yeah, she throws it with her hand and then he explodes. So I'm thinking it's foretelling how he he dies, nice. which is being blown up. and By fire. By, by fire that's thrown and you throw things with your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. That was cool. Yeah. That's so, like, I love the way he's, like, looking at his hand and just, like, turning it. And, oh, man, it's so cool. It's a great moment yeah, in the show. It is, and I love how he says, I have the sight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an interesting way of putting it. It's not like I can see things, because that's kind of, I can see things, dude, so can I. <laughs> I see dead people. You know, like, I can see things, too. Like, yeah. I can see the cup in front of me and my computer and my right, microphone. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, George but... has an eloquent way of putting things, like, king in the north, you know, like... Interesting yes. little ways of saying things, which sound really cool. So yeah, the sight. so the sight is different than I can see things. Yeah. It's very poignant. Mm-hmm. And I do need to mention that Carl Tanner has a hair thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's always playing like with his mom's hair. hair thing. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, totally. So 
um, you know, clearly she's about to get raped. And that's, you know, Jojen's kind of saving his silver bullet. He's like, I have the sight. I saw you die. And Carl Tanner's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Who and is it that says uh, Carl Carl was a top-paid cutthroat in Flea Bottom? Um, it wasn't Rast, was it? I don't remember. But... I don't remember either. I remember that line, though. So from that line, we we know that Carl has a reputation, and it, like his drunken ramblings last episode wasn't just all bluster. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. so he was like a top paid cutthroat. That's you know, that's pretty pretty serious. He's like a famous poor guy. assassin. Yeah, <laughs> famous poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to note too that Locke in this scene. You know, he's scoping out for the Night's Watch, but he sees Bran. And his real motive for being there kind of kicks in because um, after the scene where they say to Bran, you know, we're only here to guide you. We we cut back over to Locke, who's getting back to the Night's Watch. And John's like, man, you are quiet. Yep. And so they're How many talking men? about eleven of them, and that's when 11. somebody in that crew says that Carl was a top-paid cutthroat. Yes. Okay. It was that scene. That's I think maybe what stemmed my thought of this particular mm-hmm. notion is Locke says to John, "Steer clear to the hut of the right side," and John's like, "Why?" He's like, "Oh, there's hounds." So we, now we know that he's going against the Night's Watch in this moment because he's yeah. found Brandon Stark. And he's he probably knows that it's Ghost chained up by the hound, like in the hounds, you know, so he's keeping John away from there, you know, um, steering him away from saving Ghost, potentially intentionally. Oh, no. I was taking it as steer clear to the right side of the hut because that's where Bran was and he wanted to take Bran for himself oh. and didn't want John to find his brother. Gotcha, that makes and sense. And then have to fight. Yeah, because I think... I thought maybe I think he noticed Ghost both. is on the other side. And his ghost is might be like out farther away in the woods too. Farther, yeah. Good catch, yeah, yeah. That there's no hounds, but he's just saying there's hounds... To keep them away because we that's where exactly. Bran is. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And he's going to run in and grab Bran, which he tries to do. And that's when Bran uh, wargs into Hodor and snaps his neck. Yes, I love that part. The guy... Uh, oh, God. Big time. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so crazy. Hodor's freaking out, too, uh, when Carl has his men grab Mira and chain her up and... That's what he's doing, talking about her curls and everything. Yeah. And Hodor is freaking out. And then um, something happens and the, uh, oh, he, uh, that's when, what, Bran says that he has this sight? No, no, it's Jojen, sorry. I'm I'm getting all confused here. He says, I saw you die tonight. I saw your body burn. I saw the snow falling on your bones. And he's he's basically saying, like, don't hurt Mira. Like, I'll give you information. Yes, um, but I, I also like this line. I saw the snow fall and bury your bones. And I was, like, thinking double entendre. Is he referring to Jon Snow, who's the guy oh, that kills him? Is it, like, a metaphorical uh, description? Yes, of, of I love John that. That's him? awesome. And so that's when they hear the attack 
coming and they uh, two arms they're here the night's watch and so uh, like Locke or sorry Tanner and the uh, these guys run out of the uh, of that hut and go to battle and John just rushes in with long claw blazing in all directions and I just <laughs> I love watching John fight man he's good with that Me blade too. and uh, real quick with it and he with that light Valyrian steel, he's got an edge, which makes him even faster than he would normally be with a blade. It's, it's so good. And he's just like, guys are swinging at him. He's knocking the blades aside and knocking them on the ground, stabbing, thrusting down with his with the long claw. Oh, I love that scene where he goes down the back of some guy's neck. He's like, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, it's brutal. And so while... Uh, well, this is going on. This is when Locke decides to go in and try to abduct Brandon Stark. And so he goes in. Rescue parties here, lads and lady. And uh, he figures out that it's Brandon Stark by cutting his leg, which is fucked up. It's I mean, the same way that Asha finds out that he's paralyzed yeah, in the when he's earlier strapped to the horse. season two. Yes. Yeah, season one. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, season one. Yeah, so that was really cool. Good throwback to that moment as well. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, good, good catch there. So uh, he picks up Bran and carries him out, and that's when he wargs into Hodor, and Hodor like he's like Hodoring out of control, you know, Hodor, 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 and then all of a sudden, boom, the eyes go and and he. Hodor is so strong, man. I know. I know. If he weren't, if he weren't such a simpleton. Yeah, yeah. He's he's if it, uh, Jojen has the sight, Hodor has the strength. Just like mad strong. Um. So John is just trashing the baddies, man. I love watching him fight. Great posture, Me presence, too. motions. Just <laughs> so funny. And uh, so Hodor catches up with, with Locke, who thinks he's running off with Bran, but uh-uh. <laughs> Hodor just lifts him up by the neck, Crank. <laughs> snaps it like a twig, and um, then he, he has, it's a really poignant moment. He, Bran like, warg, he, like, lets go of him, releases him, and Hodor is Hodor again, and he's like, oh! And he looks down at his hands, and he's like know, seemingly horrified so by what he's just done, as if he didn't know, he, either he didn't know he was capable of it, or he's like, did I just do that? Like, was it me? Were those my hands? You know? It's just like a, yeah, really sad moment where he's realizing what he did. And That brings uh, up kind of a good question, is does Hodor know? Or do these animals, like... Um, the eagle and summer do they know that they're being warged into or is it kind of like they black out there's uh in the books there's a little more detail it seems like the, they're conscious and there hodor mm, kind okay. of shrinks down the background um but he's observing you know and he's he's observant of yeah. it he knows what's happening okay he's just like oh like you know like in the fetal position kind of like just go away you know it's pretty sad so when this happens knowing that i think it's more of like how was i capable of doing that yeah didn't know it was in him probably yeah it's pretty crazy so uh hodor gets 
locks knife and brands like listen like go get jojen and mira go you know and uh that's when Bran sees john and he calls out to john twice oh i know but it's so sad yeah and then jojen like tells him like listen if john sees you he's gonna stop you from going north we can't let him see us you know and, and Bran resists calling out a third time very sad like you were saying He's my brother, you know, <laughs> and he wants to protect you. He'll take you back to Castle Black. You have to decide. Do you want to find the Three-Eyed Raven? You know, Hodor, Hodor. <laughs> and um, I know. Bran is just singular in his ambition. And like like I was have said, he's remarkably mature for his young age and realizing his position in the grand scheme of things. And he stays on track, doesn't let... He, you know, duty overcomes love here with Bran as well. Like Absolutely. Different type of love, a fraternal love, you know, but um, the love for family. He, uh, he, he reverses the Tully words, you could say, family, duty, honor, and puts duty and honor <laughs> in front of family in this yes, case. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Bran is, he's a, he's a force of nature, man. You can't stop him. And once he realizes what what it takes to accomplish his mission, he's uh, he will do it no matter the cost. Pretty wild. So uh, this is when Carl and John end up facing off. And, and John brings a sword to a closed quartered fight. That's true. Yeah, here, is. take it away. You can talk about this since I've already covered most of it. Oh, no. That's okay. I mean, we can definitely collaborate. I just found it very interesting that Carl has two knives. They're in a closed quarter. Yeah, just like Oberyn was bringing up. Yes, and the last episode, if I'm not mistaken, we watched John teach the Night's Watchmen how to disarm someone with mm -hmm. two weapons. So, Great point. You know, I, I also loved the parallel here where John... Is kind of learning what Jamie Lannister is learning, which is to fight a little bit more without honor. Because while they're fighting, Carl is kind of egging John on. He's like, You learned from a master at arms. You learned how to fight pretty. You learned, you know, to fight nobly. He spits in his eyes. He like spits in his face. And we know that John has picked up on kind of wildling techniques you know, techniques as far as fighting, mm -hmm. but it's still pretty honorable the way they fight, in my opinion. Generally, yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. And this is kind of a major lesson learned for John about fighting with dishonor and mm -hmm. feels his kind of wild abandon in later battles that I think really serve him to, to survive. Definitely. So I I liked this scene. There were a lot of parallels and, you know, tying of nice little knots from last season or last episode with the two weapons. We know that it's not a good idea to bring a sword into mm -hmm. a close quarter fight. And it's just and amazing how uh, how good Carl is with those two daggers. Like, oh, my God. He's like, he's like carving up a turkey. Yeah, and he's just catching Longclaw everywhere, and uh, I was impressed. Well, and John had all but lost 
the fight, in my opinion. Yeah, in this he, scene. he spits in his eye, knocks Longclaw long from his grasp, and steps on his wrist so he can't pick it up. And I have, John is a goner, in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's like, oh, shit. And then the girl, this beaten girl yeah. and raped girl, just comes in and just like, does she stab him like in the shoulder? Is that where she stabs him? I think it was like, yeah, like right through the, through the shoulder, the back? Yeah, the back through the back, out from his through his shoulder, and John had already like he you know he knocked Longclaw from <clears throat> or sorry, uh, Carl knocked Longclaw from John's grasp, and he had already stabbed John in the leg too. Remember mm-hmm. that? Just to just to add to the Do. you know like how fucked up John is getting here. Yeah, and then. I mean, it totally takes Carl by surprise. And so he turns around and, you know, whacks her down to the floor. And he's not even thinking, like, John's right behind him. (laughs) Yeah, he was so, like, caught off guard by being stabbed. He, like, was not expecting that. That was the girl, like you said, that he had been raping previously. Yeah, and then we just get a very graphic scene. The first time I saw that, I, I've been very desensitized to this type of graphicness. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, I can I cannot stomach watching The Walking Dead. I like the story of it, but it's so and it's so graphic for me. I just I think I stopped like mid season four. I just looked at my husband. I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I just can't do it. And so the first time I saw this scene, I was very like not sensitive. <laughs> I was very raw, and I tried. I would try to close my eyes at all like the terrible scenes, and I did not see this one coming, and it stuck with me for like several weeks. <laughs> oh yeah, I love it. And stabs him right through the back of the fucking head, and, uh, and then we get that profile view of it. And yes, I was just like, oh I used, my god, I used that for my feedback post on Facebook. <laughs> I uh, saw. <laughs> loved it. I, I actually took it, and it was really dark, um, so I, I made it brighter so it was more visible. But then he stabs him through the back of the head. It come, The blade comes right out through his mouth, and the blade Ugh. is, like, vertical. Like um, it's. I mean, it's horizontal, but it's tilted so that the... It's like the, a 45-degree angle. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, like the sharp <laughs> sides of the blade are upwards and downwards. So it's, like... It's got to be a good two and a half inches wide, and it goes right out through his mouth, and it's like holding his mouth open. And then he slowly pulls the blade back out through the back of his head, Um, and it's just like amazing, really good graphics. And uh, I thought it was just funny that this this poor woman, this Craster's daughter, who like (laughs) just barely survived this scene, she just saved potentially the most key character in the show from being killed. Her preventing Jon Snow from being killed by T- Carl Tanner in this scene may have just saved the realm. For all that we know. Right? If John, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, if John ends up <laughs> being like Azor High or defeating the Night King or something, then we can basically credit that victory to this girl who saves Jon Snow in this scene. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't even think about that. I mean, I've thought about John. John's kind of like divine intervention that he has in a lot of his battles right the battle of the uh, bastards where the arrows are just raining down all around him yeah and the scene where he almost gets trampled and he gets back out you know just 
the scene, <gasps> there's there's a lot of them. Or, that, you know, when he comes back to life, that could be divine intervention as well. <laughs> yes, it absolutely can be classified as that. I would agree. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, I have so many theories on who Azora High could be. I think it's John sometimes. Sometimes I think it's Danny. Sometimes yep. I think it's going to be their their kid that they might have who knows and i I mean he he lays a pretty good claim to it and i know that there are some theories about their long claw bringing uh being light bringer interesting so i mean i've i've read them but i haven't memorized them so i don't want to go into too much detail gotcha i've i've read that they're I've read some theories over the years that Longclaw is Lightbringer. Nice. Yeah. Anything's possible. It'd be interesting to say. <laughs> I can't wait to find out. Um, I know. And we'll probably get to see the real Lightbringer, too, on the in the long night. Yes. I'm so excited for that. I'm so excited uh, that they're doing spinoffs. Me, too. Yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. So, um, John goes outside, and they're collecting all the bodies of the dead, and somebody finds Locke's body, and it looks like his head is like almost twisted off. Yeah, it's pretty snapped. It's it's not only that <laughs> snapped. There's like the skin is broken, and it was like like his whole neck bone sticking out of his yeah, body. <laughs> compound fracture. Like yeah, it's crazy. What the seven hells could do that to a man? And it's fucking asks, Hodor. Hodor, beast man. What up, Hodor? <laughs> what up, Hodor? Yeah, aka the Hulk. Right? Um, Seriously. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah, that was really cool. Just brutal. And uh, so there's ten dead mutineers. Um and Where's Rast? Where's, yeah, where's Rast? And Rast is running away. And he stumbles upon Ghost's cage. And the gate is open. And I just am all caps, L-O-L-O-L-O-L, as I know exactly what's coming. I have Rast shits himself. <laughs> yes. And then the way that they do it per- is perfect to it. Like, he backs up, and he's sort of, like, on the edge of the screen and with open space in front of him as he's retreating. And then right as he turns, he just catches a flying ghost right to the face. Oh. <laughs> He gets his revenge yes. for him teasing about the water, which love I that loved. Moment. I know. I yeah, tormenting animals is not okay. And uh, <laughs> no, yeah, ghost totally. He's like, you remember the in the Water Boy when somebody like nails Bobby Boucher and they they go run the <laughs> other direction and he's like, yes, he's like forty two. He picks out his number. You know what I mean? Yes. He's like, I'm gonna get him. That's what ghost you. did to Rast. You know, Rast is like after the water thing. He's like. 42 like i'm gonna get you rast you know i've got your number yes. boy <laughs> that's, so that's awesome hilarious and he takes him out and flies <laughs> totally just horizontal motion just flies through the screen sideways and just right to the face Whew. man gnarly yes and i had a note too it made me think because john gets reunited with ghosts in the scene because yes. like, what in the seven hells where have you been i was trying to remember the last time that we saw ghost and john together and the only time i can think of 
was when they were on the way to the Fist of the First Men. And we see Ghost up on the ridge and John is calling for him and has to keep going with the Night's Watch. Mm. And Ghost just kind of trails off. I wasn't sure where it was either. Was he with John at all when he was with the Wildlings? Because at the moment where John decided to climb the wall with the Wildlings, that would be like the last moment he could have been with Ghost. You know, they would have had to be separated at that point. I don't remember. And I could be wrong. I don't don't remember remember seeing Ghost with the Wildlings. Because there's no mention. I, I know for a fact none of the Wildlings ever talk about dire wolves. Mm. Interesting. Because, like, if you see if you see John with Ghost, like, if Tormund were to see it, or if Egret were to see Ghost, you would think that they would be like, "Oh my God, that's a direwolf as a pet! Like, right. why is he following you around?" Yeah, usually it's just wargs that would be with like wolves and stuff like that. Yeah, so I think maybe the last time we saw John with Ghost was before he killed Corn Halfhand. Yeah, I think like, you might be right. Ghost goes so off to I mean, hunt that's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah it's been that a was while. a long time ago. Ghost just been wandering around the north, so it's really yeah. like a like an one of the like a feel good moment in this episode when Ghost comes, you know, trotting out of the darkness from the I shadows, know. and John is so happy. I missed you, boy. <laughs> what in oh, seven man. L's? <laughs> yeah, come here. So sweet, and he looks kind of. Ghost kind of looks a little scruffy. He's a little malnourished. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not hes not quite 100%. You can kind of tell in that scene. But yeah. he's so happy to see John. Yeah, it's great. Love it. Boy and his dog, you know? Totally. Um, so this is the point where they're sort of deciding what to do next. And all of these surviving women from Craster's... John tries to do like the right thing and invite them to come south and be protected um, at Castle Black or you know even further south if they decide to go. Um, but he, they basically are like, no, nah, we're gonna figure something out up here, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, we'll find our own way, you know. Craster beat us. You guys beat us. We don't trust any of you. We have each other, and that's all we need. And so uh, they ask, he asks, you want, to, you want to stay here in Craster's Keep, you know? And they're like, burn it to the ground. I love all. how she spits on it, too. She's yeah. like, fuck this place. Mm-hmm. Epic line. And all the dead with it, she says, yeah, too. Yeah, and all the dead with it. And it's just a great moment as we watch Craster's Keep burning. And really cool. I love the, the symbology of this, too, because... We know that Craster's Keep has, for a long time, been kind of a safety zone for the right. Night's Watch. Oh, that's a great um, point. And it's very symbolic that it's gone. with the burning of Craster's Keep, there's no longer safety beyond the wall. Yep, it's great done. point, great point. And, you know, I think Craster's Keep was a terrible symbol of what could kind of it was kind of a great embodiment of horror. I mean, this man is marrying and essentially raping his daughters and breeding more women to do the same thing too. Then it gets overthrown by mutineers who all they do is rape those women and beat the shit out of them. Yep. So it's, you know, a great embodiment of the horror and 
John burning it to the ground kind of symbolizes bringing the Night's Watch back to what they stand for. You know, it's guarding the realms of men and protecting, like, men and women from these horrors. Totally. And I I was kind of wondering, like, where do you think these women went? There can't be... Maybe they found their way to Mance. That's what I was thinking, too. I was thinking they found Mance or just... I can't imagine they killed the livestock. <laughs> so maybe they took the livestock and just started homesteading themselves. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I I loved that scene of Craster's keep burning. It was very really symbolic of moment. many many um reasons that place should have burned to the ground and the yep. the foreshadowing it tells like it there's nothing safe beyond the wall anymore. And, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I like that. So, that, yeah, that pretty much wraps up my number three. Okay. Um, how about your number two? What you got? My number two is Justin Bieber gets crowned. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's mine too, except I called it Diplomatic Cersei. Okay, awesome. I just laughed at Tommen's hair in this scene. It was too millennial for me (laughs) um it was just kind of brushed too much to the side so that's why i dubbed it justin bieber (laughs) um classic but you know we we start out in this scene that is this the first scene in the show or in this Uh, episode I, i think it is i think so yeah and We hear, you know, like, may the warrior give him courage, may the smith give him strength, may the crone show him the path he must walk. And I like just kind of those sentiments, because in the Joffrey's funeral scene, Tywin kind of is schooling Tommen on these types of situations like courage strength religion right being you know kind of being on the right path as far as following his grandfather's orders and i must say tommen looks pretty stoic and regal in this scene aside from the hairdo he does i felt like the hairdo threw me off Mm -hmm. i wish they would have done a little differently because he does look very good in the scene from like a kingly standpoint and the hair just kind of in his face yeah, like brushed good, to the side good posture looks professional He's proud. Like, yeah yeah and this is echoed because you know when cersei and marjorie are talking to each other you know they start talking about who was the last decent king he's the first king in 50 years to be up there that actually deserves it right He's, yeah it's crazy. So, you know, and Marjorie even says, you know, it might be some like constitution for the horror that put him there. And I, I know that she's probably immediately referencing Joffrey, but I mean, we had Robert Baratheon up there. We had the Mad King over the past 50 years. There's been a lot of turmoil in kings that, you know, the Mad King killed. <laughs> burned them all. Robert thought, you know, strength 
was the same thing as ruling, and he didn't really manage the kingdom, which is why they're in debt mm-hmm. to the Iron Bank. So, and then Joffrey was just sadistic. Yeah, so. I liked how Cersei was describing Joffrey's behavior in this, and and uh, she's like, um, "Do you think I'm easily shocked?" You know, and Marjorie's like, "No," and she's like, "The things he did shocked me." Like, whoa, yeah. whoa. Yeah. That puts it in perspective, you know? He would have been your nightmare, is what she says to right. Marjorie. Just and like, that's such a true statement. Yeah, just like Olena knew that to be the, the truth as well. Search your feelings, Marjorie. You know that's to be true. Yeah. I just liked how she also, Cersei also said, like, you never love anything in the world the way you love your first child. Right. But no matter the what they do. He, yeah, but those things, like, they even shocked me, like, as his mother. Like, that's how fucked up Joffrey was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I do find it interesting that Cersei is kind of confiding in Marjorie in this yeah, scene. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, she's being super diplomatic to everybody in this episode. I th- Well, she sees Marjorie giving Tom and like, what I dubbed, like, the eyes. They're kind of, like, yes. flirting with each other. I love that part. They're making eyes at each other across the room, and Cersei, like, steps in between them. <laughs> yeah. Marjorie, and, like, looks away immediately. You know, she, she walks up to Marjorie, and Marjorie kind of pretends, like, nothing was happening, and there, mm-hmm. there he is. You know, long may he reign, long may, long may he reign. He sits the throne like he was born to and. It. You know, but he wasn't. And when Cersei said says that, they cue over to Tommen, and Lady Olena is congratulating Tommen on being the king. Oh man! So I, I thought that was a great, that. a great coup. Like, yeah, you can like, thank me for that, boy. Yeah, he wasn't meant to be king because of this lady. That's <laughs> so great. I thought that was great. Um, you know, and. To to Cersei's point, a mother is not enough. Like, he's going to need someone. Right. Implying that he's going to need you. Well, yeah, and Marjorie even says, he has you. And and she says, you know, a mother's not enough. And goes on to say, like, you know, you're still interested in being queen, right? I'm just amazed that Cersei is being, again, again, so diplomatic through all this. I think she's realizing Marjorie's going to be queen at some point. So maybe she should get on her good graces a little bit because we even see this this same kind of sentiment echoed when Marjorie's with all of her friends talking about consummating their marriage and Cersei walks up and Marjorie just totally schools her and Cersei's like, I'm here for whatever you need, you know. Right, true, true. So I think she's trying to maintain some face and we get this when Marjorie says, you know, we're going to be faced with a, an alarming number of weddings. You know, I don't know whether to call you mother or sister. <laughs> and it's like a big yeah. middle finger to Cersei. Like, I'm going to be your sister daughter-in-law mother. and sister-in-law. Like, we're tied together whether you like it or not. Yeah, And usually it's like Cersei being a bitch when other people are trying to be cool, right? But this is like re- the reversal. Cersei is trying to be cool to Marjorie, and Marjorie is like throwing jabs at her. Cersei's met her match with yeah, Marjorie. For sure. Marjorie's and, which a smart is, cookie. That's important too, uh, that that you say that, that she thinks she's met her match with Marjorie because we know from her vision 
or from her memory of um, at the beginning of what is it, season six, when she oh, with the cr- uh, with yeah, Maggie with the, the Frog, Witch, Maggie the Frog, yeah. We know that Cersei has been paranoid about a younger, more beautiful queen who will come and take everything from her, basically. And so she misinterprets this vision as it being Marjorie when we all know it's really Danny. Danny, um, yep. But it, it it makes Cersei be hostile to Marjorie, who should be, you know, if if Cersei had the full picture, she would be trying to get Marjorie on her side and Forming that alliance with House Tyrell that Tyrion that uh, Tywin is trying to create because only together would um, the Lannisters and the Tyrells have any chance of standing up to Danny. So Cersei Absolutely. by yeah exactly so Cersei by creating this this uh, divide between her and Marjorie is contributing to her own undoing by eliminating allies that she would need in order to uh, put up any type of resistance to uh, the Targaryen assault that she's going to be facing. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy with Cersei because she gets her future for Maggie, the frog and you know, you're going to have three children. Gold will be their crowns. Gold will be their shrouds. You know, you're the King's going to have tons of kids. None of them are his and all of your kids are going to (laughs) die. And, I think Cersei hearing that at such an impressionable age as a teenager, she kind of forces that to happen. Yeah. I mean, whether some of it's on purpose or some of it's, you know, just kind of by chance. Like, I don't think she thinks that Tommen's going to commit suicide because she kills Marjorie. But in doing that and killing Marjorie, she kills her own son. Yeah, so brutal. You know, and I, 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 I love that Maggie the Frog theory of Cersei kind of being her own prophecy and sabotaging her own life. And happiness. Same here. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's very telling and very, very parallel to her only redeeming quality of, of being a mother mm-hmm. and having her basically be kind of big reasons that her children get killed. Yeah. I like um, George says to be wary of visions and prophecies and dreams, uh, you know. So he likes messing with people. Like they'll take something too seriously, and they'll it'll result in a self fulfilling prophecy that they create by trying to prevent it from happening or things like that. People have too much faith in visions, like Melisandre, and it just goes everything goes awry, you know. Um, I like that. Well, look, it's, I mean, even um, Stannis, Stannis's wife, why am I blanking on her name? Um, uh, Celise. Celise. I mean, it's the same thing. She's throwing herself with blind abandon into the Lord of Light. And right. She ends up burning her child and then committing suicide the day after <laughs> because she can't handle what she's done. Because yep. deep down she knows, like, it's Kind of the same with Cersei. I mean, after her kids, all of her kids die, like something does kind of snap in her and she starts really going down the rabbit hole as far as like psychopath goes. Oh, yeah. Big time. Sometimes it just takes a little push. 
you know, as the... Uh... <laughs> you do that voice way too good. <laughs> <laughs> all it takes is a push. Uh, I'll have to send you pictures from Halloween. I did uh, Crazy Joker Man again. Oh, did you really? Yeah, and I had a protege. My friend Don's 10-year-old son, I did his makeup too. Made him look... That's awesome. ...psychopathic as well. Going back, um, I do love that Marjorie pretends to never have thought about marrying Tommen. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, after all of this... <laughs> I'd have to speak with my father. Yeah. You know, like she's already talked to, to Elena about it. And Cersei's kind of already probably talked to Tywin about it. It's like they're just, you know. Playing that game of words. Yes, absolutely. So. Love it. That was my number two. What's your number Killer. two? My number two is Diplomatic Cersei, which covers that scene and covers her interactions with Tywin, which we covered, where she's like, you know, going along with the whole Loras thing. Yes. But it also okay. uh, plays into her visit to Oberyn. She visits yes. Oberyn as he's writing a poem, which is pretty cool. He's a, a man of culture and grace. Yes. And we've talked about that. He's very worldly. Yes. Although he he's, he's humble as well. It's downplaying his own uh, talent at writing poems, which is kind of funny. Um, not, I, I didn't realize you were a poet. Not a very good one, he says, <laughs> which is great. Um, so we get to learn about the sand snakes here. Uh, Cersei asks if he's writing the poem for his paramour, Laria, and he says no, for one of, it's for one of his daughters. And uh, he has several, we learn, eight to be exact. And it sucks that we didn't get like the, 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 caliber of sand snakes that we get in the books they're way way more badass in the books i've heard that that was a pain point for book readers the introduction of the sand snakes being kind of a disappointment in yeah, the show like they're playing patty cake patty cake you know like hand slapping games mm-hmm. they would never do that in the books they'd be like killing stuff and manipulating people stabbing each other (laughs) yeah doing like really badass stuff you know (laughs) um yeah so it's it's uh, it's cool though that we get you know at this point we don't know that the sand snakes are kind of lame on the show so we're like oh the sand snakes they sound cool as hell eight daughters um one of them he says is named after his sister elia so it's difficult for him to uh like you know think about her or talk to her because it he can't say her name without getting sad and after he gets sad he gets angry um the god love the gods love their stupid jokes don't they (laughs) i do love cersei when she says you know perhaps that's why she's difficult yeah very telling with Mm -hmm. you know you name her after your dead sister and you're sad and angry around her and then you call her difficult it's like might be your reaction to her right (laughs) your body language and uh and then she talk like they're talking about the 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 jokes of the gods and she mentions how he's a prince of dorne legendary fighter brilliant man feared throughout westeros and she's buttering him up you know <laughs> but totally. he can couldn't save his sister and it's just like oh it's so brutal uh 
And then she's saying about herself that she's a Lannister, queen for 19 years, daughter of the most powerful man alive, but she couldn't save her son. And she has a great quote, what good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? And this just made me think of how it's totally like a Star Wars parallel where um, Anakin Skywalker chooses to go down the the path of the dark side in order to... um, Basically, his motivation is to gain powers to preserve life so that he can save his his love from a vision that he's having of her death. So he's motivated by a positive you know, idea, which is using the dark forces to protect the ones that he loves, but he ends up being like sort of in, enveloped in darkness and sure. actually kills them instead by accident, you know, <laughs> which is horrible. Um, so yeah, what good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? Very powerful uh, realization and just a great speech from Cersei. And they both agree that um, we can avenge them, you know, they're the ones that they've lost. And uh, it's it's bizarre. Like Cersei, this is a, a unique episode for Cersei where she gets along with everybody. She's nice to people. She's extending olive branches to Martell and Tyrell and agreeing to with her father's plans, which is like none of this. It's like if you were to just watch this episode by itself, you would have the, the completely the wrong impression about Cersei. <laughs> you know, this is an episode where she's completely different than the entire rest of the series. I couldn't agree more. It's very out of character, but at the same time, it's very in character. Yeah, because so I think weird. she's trying to figure out. Who can she manipulate? Yep, exactly. So she's, she's throwing she's feelers out there. Yes, she's putting olive branches out there, testing relationships so she can take advantage. Yep. It's not she's not looking for acceptance or love or friendship. She's looking for her next victim. <laughs> I mm-hmm. hate to say it that way, but you know, I'm gonna kind of butter Marjorie up to see if I can manipulate her to keep manipulating my son. I'm going to manipulate Oberyn to try and see if I can get him to vote my way. I'm going to try to manipulate my father to see if I can convince him to, you know, vote against Tyrion. So she's, she's at the point of a chess game where you have to think six moves ahead again. You know, yep. it's like you're coming up on your final couple of moves and you need what to start can you strategizing to lure your enemy into a position of danger. Exactly. So it it is not characteristically like Cersei, but if you dig a little deeper and know her character well In enough. In context, it, it, it fits. She absolutely <laughs> is doing that. So, Love it. but it does, it does throw a first time viewer off for sure. Yeah. Oh man, it's great. Um, so moves on and the conversation switches to Marcella and we see again how much Marcella's absence haunts Cersei and uh, Oberyn is trying to comfort her you know she's like I haven't seen my daughter in over a year you know and he's like the last time I saw her she was swimming with two of my girls in the water gardens laughing in the sun you know Cersei wants to believe that wants to believe that she's happy and Oberyn gives his word says, we don't hurt little girls in Dorne. And uh, she replies, 
everywhere in the world they hurt little girls, which obviously foreshadows Marcella's fate in Dorne, sadly. Absolutely. I love how Cersei gives Marcella a ship. Yeah, it's cool, huh? Because she's always loved the open water, and Oberyn says, you know, I'll have my men sail it down to Dorne. I think that's also a foreshadow because Marcella returns to King's Landing. Is it on that ship? I, I'm i not sure. I need to look at the sails again when we get to that episode. Yeah. I took note of what the boat looked Very like. angular, unique Angular looking. sails. Yeah. So I'm going to look to see if it's her ship. Yeah, that's My good. guess is that it is. Oh, that's but so I'm curious. I'm curious to see. I'm not 100% sure on that assumption. But she returns to King's Landing as a corpse Ugh. on her ship. So, so I'm pretty sure it is. And I, I'm anxious to, I like, can't remember what episode that's in. So I didn't look ahead to double check. But when we get there in the rewatch, I'll make yeah, sure yeah. to make note of it. Totally. It's funny too. She, uh, remember how she says, oh, I slaved with the goldsmith for days and days to make sure the <laughs> hand was just right. In this case, she says that the best shipwrights in King's Landing have been working on this ship for months, you know, and I believe it in this case. I don't think Me she's too. bullshitting, you know. It's just funny. Um, and I agree. You can just, uh, they, Cersei and Oberyn just do connect on a number of levels in this. They're both pained by the absence of a loved one, and Cersei is missing Marcella and is visibly affected by it, and Oberyn is relating to Cersei as he mourns the absence of his sister and her children as well. They sort of connect in a little bit. Uh, they do. And this is another another scene that we see Cersei get tearful. And Yeah, true. You know, just another reminder that there is a there's a soul in there. <laughs> Even if Somewhere. it's a dark one. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, that pretty much wraps up my number uh, two. How about your number one? So my number one was the raid at Craster's Keep. And oh, I think right, we cool. covered that in detail. So what was your number one? My number one is Arya and the Hound. Haria. Haria. <laughs> <laughs> and so they are doing their thing, about to go to sleep. And Arya is reciting her list. Joffrey. Yes. Cersei. Waldefrey, Meryn Trent, Tywin Lannister, the Red Woman, Beric Dondarrion, Thoris of Mir, Illyn Payne, the Mountain. Would you shut up? I can't <laughs> sleep until I say all the names. And uh, this made me, reminded me of her. You remember where she got this whole name thing? Wasn't it from Yorin? Was yeah, that his name? Exactly. The, yeah, the night, the Night's Watchmen. Yeah, on the way back from uh, to the, they're you know they're heading towards Castle Black from. Uh, when he scoops her up after she witnesses Ned's execution. Yes. And so he was telling her about how he did this, basically, and she picks up the technique from him, which I just thought the I don't know, it just popped into my head. I thought it was cool that she's sort of adopted this. Um, she's, she picks up influences from everyone that she's with. Um, Absolutely. Sort of, sort of like Sansa. So one of the only parallels between the two characters, you could say. Very, very good point, actually. It's their only relatable quality, even though yeah. they're sisters. Yeah, they both learn from people they're they're with, which is good. They're observant. 
Yeah. So she, uh, the hound's like, shut the fuck up. She's like, I can't sleep until I say all the names. He's like, what the names of every fucking person in Westeros? You know? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, no, 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 no. Only the ones I'm going to kill. You know? And, uh, the Hound relates, you know, hates as good a as thing as any to keep a person going, better than most, and he hates his brother, which is a big motiva- motivation for him. So uh, he says, we come across my brother, maybe we can both cross a name off our list. And <laughs> so there's a way that they're relating, is that they both have the, uh, you know, this sort of foreshadows them the being mountain. on the same side about something. They both have the mountain on their list, you know. So uh, this is pretty cool, and it's also foreshadowing the whole like Clegane Bowl concept, which is the uh, the inevitable yes. battle between Sandor and Gregor that everybody's hoping to see. I want to uh, see that. <laughs> if not on the in the books, then in the show, everybody, all show watchers want to see it happen. Um, so she says, uh, "If he were here right now, what would you do?" And <laughs> in a classic response. And tell him to shut the fuck up so I can get some sleep. <laughs> Go on, <laughs> get over with it. Your list of doomed men. And she says, I'm almost done. Only one name left. Go on. And she rolls over and turns away from him and curls up. The hound. And, uh, and I love how he looks over at her like, yeah, what? <laughs> like amazed at her audacity and like upfrontness, you know, and he, his head cocks over towards her. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was really well done. I loved that reaction too. And I love her like sweet little innocence when she said that. She's like, I'm almost done. Yeah, There's yeah, yeah. my yeah. name left. Yep. It's little not like you're suspect. the last one on my list, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm almost dead. She's just so matter of fact about it. Not even. And then when it. she says it, she's like the hound. Like the as hound. she's been say she's been saying the other names in that tone of voice. That tone, like, yeah. Cersei. Joffrey. The Hound. Yeah. Yes. Love it. So then um we get to the next scene with uh the hound and Arya, and the hound is sleeping. And I'm just surprised that he's he's willing to sleep with Arya nearby because she's a creepy little girl. <laughs> little girl. I know. <laughs> and he doesn't know how like truly dangerous she is yet. But this is the first time we see Arya practicing with needle, and she's dancing around and switching she's water her dancing grips and yeah by a waterfall in a river. <laughs> so funny, yeah. And he's like, "What the hell are you doing?" practicing what ways to die <laughs> and uh this is potentially foreshadowing no one's going to kill me Arya says and we know oh. that she like abandoned her training at the faceless men you know at the house of black and white and that that chick the waif stabbed her in the gut and some people think that uh you know the waif may be impersonating Arya at this point so maybe oh, uh, maybe no one did kill Arya or does kill Arya and if if it if the wave didn't kill her then the odds are you know it's possible Jacken seemed to let her go but it's possible that they could send somebody to take her out because she knows too much and she's not part of the order that's true um, so I also like that as a foreshadow because George R.R. R. Martin's wife her favorite character is Arya 
Right. And she told George that <laughs> right, if right, right. he kills Arya in the in the books, that she will divorce him. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Oh, and it so. could also be seen as a metaphor for, um, you know, a girl has no name, in which case no one supplants Arya, like metaphorically killing Ar- the identity of Arya as she assumes oh, the, yes. the no one mantra, at least temporarily, um, which is pretty cool. So he's he, the hound is shitting all over her fighting style, just like <laughs> just as he shits over all over her uh, her trainer, as we've come to find out in a minute. Serial Pharrell. Yeah. It's not fighting. It's water dancing. Dancing. <laughs> Maybe you ought to put on a dress. Who taught you that shite? <laughs> the greatest swordsman who ever lived. Serial Pharrell, first sword to the Sea Lord of Bravos. And uh, I just love, like, her hyperbole, you know, the greatest swordsman ever. Hyperbole is always funny. Totally. You know? So he's like, bravos, greasy-haired little bastard, I bet they all are. She's like, what do you know about anything? <laughs> I bet his hair is greasier than Joffrey's cunt. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Such a great line. It was not. Oh, oh so you saw Joffrey's cunt, uh, Arya? You can attest to this um and he's like uh it was he dead yes how he was killed who by marin trent marin fucking trent (laughs) yeah the most epic line everybody loves the marin fucking trent line you know yes the greatest swordsman who ever lived killed by marin fucking trent he was outnumbered. Any any fucking any boy whore with a sword could beat three Marin Trants. He's, he hates Marin Trant. Oh man, so funny. And uh, he's, he's, she's like, Sirio didn't have a sword or armor, just a stick. The greatest swordsman who ever lived didn't have a sword. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you have a sword. Let's see what he taught you. And Go he's on. making like good points too. Oh yeah, yeah. You know. It's not like... And she's learning from him, too. Yes. You know, I mean, he's being an ass, but he's also making good points. Yeah, and she's she. it's not lost on her, you know? She's He's calling out calling her out on her bullshit, and it's sinking in, I think, a little bit. You know, and it, if, if it hadn't sunk in already, um, he's like, go on, do it for your bravosi friend, you know? Dead like all the rest of your friends, do it, you know? And so she yeah. fucking, almost like... He didn't think she would actually try to stab him, you know. She boom jabs him with with needle, and uh, she's surprised when it doesn't penetrate his armor, and he's surprised that she actually did it. And he whack backhands her across the face. Oh with god, his and he hits her so hard too. I mean, yeah. She like flies back totally. And a very succinct way to sum up the lesson that he's just taught her. Uh, your friend's dead, and Marin Trant's not, because Trant had armor and a big fucking sword. <laughs> you know? And that's uh, that's so a good lesson, man. Good lesson. Jorah knows that lesson. Yeah, especially because has, she has, like, this little tiny sword needle. I mean... Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. saw very visually that that sword cannot penetrate armor, because... <laughs> The hound just had chainmail on. Right. It can pick teeth, you know, though. You can pick your teeth with it, but you can't <laughs> stab someone, which maybe is kind of foreshadowing to Arya's 
training to use other weapons mm. other than needle because she does kill Littlefinger with the dagger. Yeah, Valyrian steel. And not, the cat's yeah, and not needle. I have a replica of that as well. The dagger? Yeah, the cat's paw dagger. Oh, yes. Pretty cool. So have you heard of the theories about the cat's paw dagger taking place of... Dark Sister. Dark Sister? Yes, yeah. What do you think about those? I think it's probably true, and that in the books we'll get to see Dark Sister in the place of, um, like, coming back from the wall with Bran. Because Blood Raven the, is the guy in the tree, is the, he's the Thread Raven in the books, and uh, he was the last known person to have um, Dark Sister, one of the, the ancestral Targaryen Valyrian steel blades, which was, who was it, Rhaenys or Visenya that wielded Dark Sister? Visenya. Visenya. Yeah. Yes. So it's a, it's a slimmer blade with a handle designed to fit a woman's hand. And uh, Blood Raven ended up with it, and he took it north of the wall. I think George R. R. Martin has confirmed this. So it, it would make sense in the books that Bran ends up with Dark Sister and ends up giving it to Arya, his Dark Sister. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so cool. I do want to make one more note on this scene. Do it. So this... I'm a horse nerd, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just call him like you see him, but... So when Arya is water dancing in front of the waterfall, in front of the river, and the hound kind of starts walking down the hill, behind the two of them, you see two horses, a white horse and a black horse. Nice. And actually, they are not horses. They are ponies. Oh. And this, this scene was filmed in Iceland. And what caught my attention was Arya does ride that white pony in other episodes, mm -hmm. particularly when she gets on the ship to go to Bravos. When she's riding down to the harbor, oh. she's on that white pony. And that scene is also filmed in Iceland. But the, the dark pony next to the white pony is supposed to be a fill-in for the hound's horse. Stranger? Well, I mean, w yes, whatever horse he's riding. we In the show, we're not aware that he has a special horse. Right, true. Named Stranger. So, so yes, that's correct. But from a viewpoint of the show, we... It's not, it's just random horse that he's riding. He's just a pony. But Sandor, the hound, is too large to ride a pony. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah <laughs> you could say that. So this is where my fact comes in. So Iceland, you cannot import foreign horses into Iceland due to diseases that they want to keep out because they have an extremely large population of wild ponies wow. in Iceland. And 
because you cannot import horses, you cannot film in Iceland actual horses because you can't import them. You can't even put them in quarantine. They just don't allow them in the country. Very interesting. So this is why that there are two ponies in the background of the scene and not a pony and a horse because it was filmed in Iceland and they cannot ship in full grown horses to replace the the ponies. So they actually have to use Icelandic ponies. That's crazy. So Um, what's the difference between a pony and a horse? I always thought that just a pony was just like a baby horse. So a pony is a small horse. Okay. They can be, you know, fully grown, but they're a cert they they can't pass a certain size, which I believe, oh my gosh, I believe technically is fourteen hands and every hand is a four inches. Okay. So, so colloquially colloquially, uh ponies are when people refer to ponies, they're often just talking about adolescent horses, correct? It's like many times very common. It's very common, but but that's not exclusively baby horses. Yes, baby horses are referred to as um, females are considered fillies, and male young horses are considered colts. Right and ponies are actually specific breeds, and there are many breeds of ponies. Okay, this is interesting. Which cool. also differ from. I mean, I can go on all day, Duncan. But this also there's also a difference between a miniature horse and a pony. Like little Sebastian. Yeah, like there are miniature horses. They're like literally the size of dogs. Yeah, that's <laughs> like little, little Sebastian. From <laughs> Parks and Recreation. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, Ponies. Little Sebastian. <laughs> yeah, so miniature horses you cannot ride. They can be used for pulling carts with small children in them, but they're very small in stature. Ponies, you can actually ride them if you are small. That's why they're fairly popular with Kids. young children. Gotcha. Um, but they're also ornery. So I wouldn't get a pony for a kid. I'd rather get like a full-size horse. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but funny. anyways, back to my point. I thought that was a really fun little catch that I caught. Yeah, good a catch. Few, a few watches idea. ago. Yeah, that the two horses and just knowing that Sandor is way too big to ride a pony and there were two ponies in the background it instantly clued me in because I know a lot of those scenes um, with the Hound and Arya are filmed in Iceland right? and so it was just a great reminder of where these episodes were kind of filmed yeah there you go there's your explanation <laughs> yeah cool. so my little my little fun horse fact of the day nice so that pretty much uh, wraps up my number one, and I'm actually all out of notes, too. Do you have anything else you want to talk about about this episode? No, I was just going to say I'm all out of notes as well. Cool. All right, then uh, we will take a little break, and we'll be right back with you. This song is called 5,000 Candles in the Wind. Up in horsey heaven, hears a thing. Trade your legs for angels' wings 
And we're back with news about Game of Thrones. Our first piece comes from Screen Rant. Game of Thrones Theory. The Long Night Will Tell Azor Ahai's Story by Hannah Shaw-Williams. With George R.R. R. Martin's recent confirmation that HBO's Game of Thrones spinoff is titled The Long Night, we think that the next slice of historical fantasy could explore the life of legendary warrior Azor Ahai. Though he's never appeared in Game of Thrones, on account of dying thousands of years before the show begins, Azor Ahai's presence has been felt through the machinations of Melisandre, a devoted disciple of the Lord of Light, who believes that the time has come for Azor Ahai's successor to rise. At first, Melisandre believed that Stannis Baratheon was the reincarnation of Azor Ahai, but her focus has since shifted to Jon Snow, whose life story matches up with several pieces of the prophecy of Azor Ahai's return. Many fans are on board with this theory, believing that Game of Thrones' eighth and final season will see Jon defeat the oncoming horde of White Walkers and Whites with the legendary sword Lightbringer. But however Game of Thrones ends, whether with, with Jon becoming Azor Ahai, another character proving to be the reincarnation, or Azor Ahai's success, successor never materializing at all, The Long Night seems like a perfect opportunity to explore where the legend came from. For more about why, visit ScreenRant.com. So, I could see... Cause you know how we're all sort of speculating about who could be the the reincarnation of Azor Ahai at this point? Yes. I think that The Long Night is going to start out this in a similar way. We're not going to know who the Azor Ahai figure is. <laughs> It'll only come to light after a number of seasons when it, when he finally steps up basically maybe yeah uh, i i agree i think it's we're not going to find out right away right. it's going to take some time because since there's so many names eldrick shadow chaser <laughs> azora high the prince who was promised you know like all these different things um we don't know what the the figure's name was in history at the time we all we know is these legends and they have all these different names so it could be anybody really it could be i have my theories but yeah yeah no. It's going to we'll be fun. See. Yeah. And this article claims that the upcoming show has been titled The Long Night, but it turns out that George R.R. R. Martin was mistaken and that they haven't fully decided on the name yet. So he retracted his statement and apologized, but he's confident that it's still in the running. Okay. Our next article is from winteriscoming.net. Ghost will have a fair amount of screen time in Game of Thrones season eight. Yes, by David Harris. I know Travis is excited about that. Yes, me too. I'm excited too. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. If there was one character fans wanted to see more of, or any of, for that matter, in Game of Thrones Season 7, it was Ghost, Jon Snow's direwolf. He was written into the last scene in Stormborn, according to writer Brian Cogman, but it was cut. 
There was a bit where John came out of the crypt and Ghost came up to him and he petted him and said, take care of Sansa, watch over her for me. But I guess those dire wolves are expensive. And I guess it got cut. Oh, well, Ghost, Ghost is there somewhere roaming around. The most we got of Ghost in season seven was a brief mention from Sansa about the Northern Lords not sitting around waiting for Jon to come back to Winterfell like Ghost. Well, good news, you guys. Game of Thrones special effects supervisor Joe Bauer revealed to Huffington Post that Ghost is coming back. Oh, you'll see him again, Bauer <laughs> said. He has a fair amount of screen time in season eight. Oh, he that's does so show exciting. Up. So I'm excited. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. We got like no Ghost in season uh, season seven. That was crazy, man. None. Yeah, it's what crazy. All right, let's move on to Game of Thrones and history. Starting a new article this time from Bustle. The 10 Most Clever Literary References in the Game of Thrones Books by Charlotte Allen. George R.R. R. Martin has only written five out of a proposed seven books in A Song of Ice and Fire so far, and already the series clocks in at approximately 1.77 million words. That means that Infinite Jest could fit inside the series 3.1 times over. With so much story That's to tell, crazy. yeah, it's no surprise that Martin has found himself borrowing from other works of literature and mythology, and sneaking in a few little winks at his favorite authors as well. Here are some of the most clever literary references in A Song of Ice and Fire. Many of Martin's sneaky references are hidden within descriptions of heraldry and lists of knights, so careful not to skip over any long, seemingly pointless passages. You might miss a few Easter eggs. Martin slips in shout-outs to his fellow fantasy writers, favorite musicians, and favorite sports teams. Mm -hmm. The lyrics to the 70s anthem, I Am Woman, are even hidden within the mottos of the great houses. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know I'll that. have to look at that. <laughs> Hear me roar. Yes, absolutely. But perhaps most interesting of all is the way that Martin takes different elements of literature and mythology and weaves them into something new. From Tolkien-inspired characters to evil squid monsters, there are a few of the best literary references hidden in the series. The Three-Eyed Crow is a lot like Odin. Norse mythology is a heavy influence on the world of ice and fire. For one, the Norse concept of Ragnarok, or the death of the gods, is pretty close to this endless death winter that everyone is trying to avoid. For, for another thing, the three-eyed crow, three-eyed raven in the TV adaption, has some not-so-subtle shades of Odin to him. Odin is the king of the Norse gods in classic North, Norse mythology. Like Odin, the three-eyed crow is an all-seeing figure with only one literal eye. Odin can see through the eyes of his loyal ravens and wolves, much like the three-eyed crow, and he, has, he had to sacrifice his body to the tree of life in order to obtain his infinite wisdom. That's so, like, spot That's on. That's awesome. The chief adversaries of Odin and his family are also ice giants, who are forever trying to break through the wall into the godly realm of Asgard. Asgard. That's nuts. That's crazy. The drowned god might be Cthulhu. The ironborn of the Iron Islands worship a creepy, squiddy de deity known as the drowned god. Their catchphrase, what is dead may never die, is also a snappier version of H.P. Lovecraft's quote, that is not dead, which can be eternal lie. And with strange eons, 
even death may die. Lovecraft's quote is referring to Cthulhu, his own creepy squiddy monster god who slumbers eternally beneath the sea. If that's not enough for you, Martin makes a vague, oblique reference to sea creatures known as the Deep Ones who also appear in Lovecraft's story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Very interesting. Cthulhu is a fun character. There's a, a couple episodes of South Park where Cartman is allied with Cthulhu and they're like going around causing mayhem together. <laughs> Cthulhu! Cthulhu, dude, over here! Hey, Cthulhu! Stop! <laughs> Awesome. For more of these 10 clever literary references, go to bustle.com and uh, check out that article, guys. You hear that? What was that? <laughs> Lady Lisa of House Sky, Pyromancer. <laughs> My face when Robin throws his new gift through the moon door. He's such a boob. Maybe it's because he's attached to one all the time. <laughs> and she has awesome. one of those uh, emojis emojis with like the flat mouth, like Ugh. the straight face. Yeah, the straight face. <laughs> yep. It was extremely satisfying watching Ghost take down Rast, that traitorous, traitorous schmuck that caged <laughs> and tortured our fluffy boy. My dog Luna is a big white fluffy thing, so I have a special place in my heart for Ghost. Hi, Aww. Luna. Hi, Luna. <laughs> Side note, Rast looks a lot like Marin fucking Trant that Arya, <laughs> spoiler alert, gloriously slays in the future. And speaking of Arya, we get to see her practice her form this episode, and it is fantastic already. She is amazing. Sorry. It's amazing to think that she looks this good and hasn't even come close to her full killer potential yet. And lastly, Bran works into Hodor and snaps Locke's neck like a twig. Seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when Hodor, Hodor, sorry, <laughs> I always want to say Hodor. Hodor, Hodor, Hodor. Hodor, Hodor. When Hodor comes out of it and the poor sweet giant is distraught and can't process what happened to him, in the books, it is expressly forbidden to warg into a human for ethical reasons like this, but in the shows, it's played off as an impossible task. But when Hodor looks down at his hands, I couldn't help but think that the heart-wrenching moment in the never-ending story when Rockbiter is looking at his hands and sadly repeats how big and strong they are, but he still couldn't save his friends from the nothing. Damn. Very good. They look like good, big, strong hands, don't they? Hodor often reminds me of Rockbiter. He's got a body of stone, but a heart of gold. Oh, also, the Pod and Brienne show is one of my absolute favorite duos. What are your favorites? They're one of my favorites, too. Yeah, um, I think my favorite duo is Lysa and Robin Aaron. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a gross joke. <laughs> um, Bran, uh, Bron and Tyrion is one of my favorites. How about you? Um, I have to agree with you. I think Bron and Tyrion are my favorites. Definitely. And uh, Arya and the Hound are another one of my favorites. I do. I do like 
John and Tormund too oh, when they're yeah. beyond the wall together, mm-hmm. even in these earlier seasons, but also in the later seasons as well. I like their dynamic with each other. Definitely. <laughs> so many good duos. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Sir Matthew of House Rep. Robin Aaron, you are what you eat, eh? <laughs> A boob, <laughs> like Lady Lisa called him. <laughs> Lisa Aaron is unbearable, as slimy as Littlefinger is. I almost feel sorry for him. I remember being so shocked at the big reveal that she killed John Aaron, as I was certain it was Pycelle on orders from Cersei. Sansa can't even get a day of peace when she now has to deal with her unhinged aunt and cousin. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> yeah. God damn, it sucks to be Sansa. It does. Like She feels like she's finally safe with her family. No. Nope. And then... Nope, not gonna happen. Okay. Axel Erickson. Carl Tanner, what a guy. (laughs) Perfectly portrayed as a legendary cutthroat back alley fighter with his two short dirks. He would have bloody won one-on-one against John. For sure, I couldn't agree more with that. At least in in, uh, close quarters combat like that. Definitely. Yes, you don't bring a sword to a close quarters fight. We've learned this lesson. Yeah, that was, oh man. John was real close to getting off there. For sure. For sure. <laughs> Sir Patrick of Hindsight says, The meeting of Locke and Carl is so heavily foreshadowed, and then, nope, John levels up when he fights Carl. <laughs> he later uses the spit-in-the-eye technique to defeat the Then at Castle Black. Oh, I totally forgot about that. That's a good catch, man. Sarah Larkham says, Marjorie is playing Cersei, trying to convince her she mourns for Joffrey and doesn't think she will marry Tommen. And Cersei, who is still mourning, tells her that she knows that Joffrey was a monster. We learn of Liza's poisoning of her John Aaron that started the show, and we see Liza's jealousy of Sansa because she looks so much like Catelyn, and she knows that Peter always loved her more than Lysa. Hello, Duncan and Rachel. It's Zach again with feedback. Hi, Zach. Hey, brother. first of his name. One quick note from the previous episode, Oathbreaker, that I didn't get time to send in feedback for that episode. But one little nugget in the end of that episode, when the White Walker is taking the baby up to the uh, Ice Fortress, he was riding a horse. And the horse's reins that the White Walker was holding, go back and look what they were made of. They were made of chains. The White Walker's have chains on their horses. They know how to make chains or they have access to a bunch of chains. Surely that means something as far as the whole debate and conspiracy theories about how did they get the chain to drag Viserion out of the lake and uh, beyond the wall. Season 7. They have chains. David and Dan are showing it to us right here on the horse that the White Walker's riding. Okay, so, for um, first of his name, uh, Marjorie plays the game so well. She's standing there in the throne room, making eyes at Tommen, and then, of course, Cersei steps in and shuts that shit down real quick, and then goes over to Marjorie, and they have their little conversation. And uh, Marjorie plays the sweet, innocent morning wife so well. Of course, Cersei sees through it, but uh, they're just playing games with each other. And uh, how Marjorie says, oh, I haven't given any thought about what happens next. Bitch, please. We all know you're scheming. Cersei's scheming. Everybody in King's Landing is scheming. But uh, Marjorie really does play the game well. 
Um, hard choices um, were a little bit of a theme in this episode. Bran makes a hard choice. Danny makes a hard choice. Danny takes a stand uh, in Marine and says, I will rule. She's learning what Robert Baratheon never did, that uh, winning and ruling are two very different things. Uh, Bran, of course, is there, gets away from Locke, and uh, is right there. He can see John, but uh, he decides, he makes the hard choice and decides to uh, continue his journey north to uh, become the Three-Eyed Raven. So two very hard choices for those characters. The easy choice would have been the opposite of what they did that was his brand's brother the easy thing would have been to call out to him and he haven't seen any of his family in years at this point i think so uh, and of course with danny the easy thing would be to set sail for westeros leave slaver's bay behind and just say forget about it head to westeros and do her thing there but she makes the hard choice okay before we learn everything that uh, littlefinger and lysa have done uh, when Robin meets Sansa there in the uh, the court, the the room, the big room right there with the moon door, uh, Robin says the Lannisters killed my father with poison, and right then Lysa's eyes cut over to Littlefinger who's off screen, but I'd, I've never noticed that before. Right when he talks, little Robin talks about the poison, her eyes cut to Littlefinger and then look back at Robin real quick. I mean, it's the slightest little look. But little things like that, I think we're all catching on this rewatch. Uh, and then I remember when Lysa basically tells the audience everything. They were behind John Aaron's poison, poisoning. That was such a holy shit moment for me when we first learned it, when we first watched it. I just could not believe that those two, of course you knew Littlefinger, it was got schemes going all the time, but basically what started everything in this uh, story was schemed by uh, Littlefinger and Lysa Aaron. God, she is psycho. She is so freaking psycho. That scene with her and Sansa after the lemon cakes and she starts squeezing her hand and man, she is crazy, crazy bitch. Um, more great scenes with Arya and the Hound. She uh, goes through her names and of course adds the Hound at the end of the list. Uh, and then the next day she's out and he, uh, doing her river, not river dancing, water dancing. And, uh, he's unimpressed by all the, the, uh, dancing moves she says. And, uh, of course, one of his great lines of the series is, uh, the greatest swordsman who ever lived killed by Marin fucking Trent. It's, uh, I love that. It's so funny that, uh, how much, uh, disrespect he has for Marin Trent and his abilities. Um, Brienne and Pod have their little conversation by the fire, and uh, she learns something. I think she thinks of Pod as a total nincompoop up to this point, but uh, she finds out that Pod was uh, involved in the Battle of Blackwater, mixed it up a little bit, and uh, killed a Kingsguard. So uh, I think she's legit impressed uh, that Pod has killed somebody and much less killed a Kingsguard. Uh, okay, what the hell does Jojen's burning hand mean? This... It's got to be something for the last season. Um, I don't know. Maybe not. But that's just, just crazy. Uh, he says, this isn't the end. Not for you. Not yet. Talking to Bran. So I guess he's seen Bran's end. Does that have to do with fire? And then Mira asks, how will we know the end? And Jojen just says, you'll know. 
So has he seen Mira's end also? Will it, will their end involve fire? Dragon fire maybe? Oh my God, can't wait to find out. I, that's such a puzzling um, scene, the end of that scene right there where it, uh, he's looking at his hand. Um, Hodor's first kill, oh that was epic. I love that. He just straight up lifted Homeboy off the ground and uh, snapped his neck. And then after all the fighting was over, I can't remember if it was Pip or Gran or somebody else, looked at um, Locke's neck and says, Wouldn't the Seven Hells could do that to a man? Motherfucking Hodor, that's who. Um, both Bronn and Carl Tanner kind of have something in common. They both know how to fight dirty and to uh, street fight. Jamie and John are castle-born and castle-raised, with a master at arms teaching them all the proper, you know, strikes and blows and parries, like Carl Tanner talks about in their fight. And uh, but they don't know how to mix it up and get down and dirty, if need be. So both Jamie and John, uh, both I think, learned that some through the course of the of the series. But uh, they're definitely an interesting parallel there. How they both have somebody to teach them a little bit about um, fighting dirty. Uh, God, that sword fight slash knife fight between Carl Tanner and John is great. Man, that was a great uh, fight sequence. Um, he kind of, you know, has the best of John for a good for um, basically all that sword fight, and um, John kind of gets saved by the uh, the wildling girl who uh, puts the axe in uh, Carl Tanner's back, and then that kill is right there at the top of all the kills in the whole series. You know, I love when the dog eats Ramsey's face, but this is right there near the top because Carl Tanner is such a disgusting, foul son of a bitch. And uh, that sword through the mouth is epic. And then my last note was, burn that bitch down. Uh, Craster's Keep is just a bad place full of bad history so I love that they put it to the torch. That's all my notes for uh, first of his name. Thank you guys. Keep up the great podcast. Loving it. Bye. That was a great voicemail, Zach. Thank you so much for calling in. Yes, sir. Always great to hear from you, man. Love it. Thanks for your feedback, everybody. All right, that's our show, episode 77. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you guys so much. We love all your feedback. Totally. And next episode, we'll be covering season four, episode six, The Laws of Gods and Men. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on air. Holiday season is approaching, and if you'd like to support Game of Microphones without spending any extra money, you can. Just go to GameOfMicrophones.com and click on our link to Amazon. This will add a cookie to your browser, and while all of your prices will remain the same, Game of Microphones will receive a little finder's fee from Amazon for everything you buy for directing you to their site. This is super easy to do, doesn't cost you a penny more, and makes a huge difference for us. A few people have asked how to donate to the podcast and until now there hasn't been a way but soon you'll also be able to donate to Game of Microphones at gameofmicrophones.com and or subscribe to give a monthly contribution of an amount of your choice and we'll figure out some incentives and stuff like that to uh, add to the Yeah, that's cool. I'm 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 hoping people donate to you for <laughs> sure. Thanks. Yeah, me too. That'd be cool. It's a lot of work, so 
hopefully I got to make it worth it, you know? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I just do it for fun, but I know you spend like a shit ton of hours doing this, so. Definitely. If you'd like to call, you can call us at 813 Joffrey. That's 813 563 3739. If you'd like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. Imslap! <laughs> We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Gab at gompodcast. Give us a like on Facebook and an iTunes rating slash review. And I keep forgetting to mention this, but we are also on YouTube. So give a search for Game of Microphones on YouTube and we have all our episodes up there as well. Not video yet, but but uh, maybe someday we'll do Thank some, God. some videos. <laughs> I'm down. That'd be fun. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that'd be cool. I'm, I'm looking into this software, Open Broadcaster Studio, and... Uh, in that case, we'd be able to, yeah, like like do videos and stuff. It'd be cool. Yeah, we play can do clips that. from the show and everything. I'm I'm so cool with that. That'd be awesome. Nice. Um, we're also on Tumblr at Game of Microphones. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Do you know how much gold was mined in the Westerlands this past year? Haven't a clue. Go on. Your best guess. Pounds? Tons? Ounces? Doesn't matter. The answer is the same. That can't be. where we are at currently in this series, all three of those men are dead. True. Are you pregnant? Like, do you know what the horrors do to his body? It's like, her mind (laughs) is like going fucking everywhere. It's like... Great minds die alike. (laughs) What on earth is going on? Total crazy lady there. Just, you know, you're seeing the cracks. The cracks are showing. I'm a virgin, I swear it. Mental. Manic. Yeah, beat her, then give her a bubble bath. He brought you six crates of lemon cakes, so now you're fucking him. Oh, right, right. The uh, the girl with the semen face girl. <laughs> Is that the yes. right, same girl? <laughs> yes. Um, oh, my God. That filthy troll. Yeah, yeah. And soon, Sansa, <laughs> you'll be free to marry little sweet Robin. So we get a glimpse of kind of Pod's squiring skills. <laughs> Or lack or, thereof. Or lack thereof. He's stomping on it. God, what is going on here? Foretelling how he he dies, nice. which is being blown up and by fire. John just rushes in with long claw blazing in all directions. Forty two. I love how she spits on it too. She's like, "Fuck this place." And they're like, "Burn it to the ground." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Really going down the rabbit hole as far as like psychopath goes. There is a there is a soul in there, <laughs> even if Somewhere. it's a dark one. And I'm just surprised that he's he's willing to sleep with Arya nearby because she's a creepy little. 
<laughs> girl. <I know. laughs> Visenya. Yeah. Yes. He's just a pony. <laughs> I always want to say Hudor. 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 Who's door? Carl Tanner. What a guy. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.